Welcome to this week's episode of Daily Horror Habit, the podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always be warned, these discussions may include spoilers. Well, folks, it's been one hell of a well-rounded year for horror, whether it was the bountiful helping of legacy sequels, indie darlings, or larger-than-life studio productions, there was something to satiate every horror fan's appetite. While it'd be impossible to truly cover everything that was released this year, my guests and I will do our best to show love to the films and talent behind them that stood out to us this year for Daily Horror Habits 2022 Horror Awards. We'll rattle off some of the best of categories while also divulging a few honorable mentions for each. And as a quick note, while some of these films premiered at film festivals in 2021, they weren't available to general audiences until this year, so I consider them to be eligible. Sue me. And joining me is none other than returning friend of the show and one-third of the Nuclear Fridge podcast, Mr. Stuart Gears. Welcome back to the show, man. Thank you for having me. I have been looking forward to this conversation to really geek out with the horror. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, that's why when I was kind of like thinking about who I wanted to talk about a year in horror with, like you were at the top of the list because I feel like we both have found many situations uh, over the course of the year where, you know, we'll watch something randomly and then we don't have anybody in our immediate circle to kind of like talk to about it or even know what it was if we mentioned it. And so that's why I thought you would be great to have for this because so many times this year, like you'll send me recommendations for stuff that I've never heard of or, you know, some obscure indie horror film that uh, I mentioned to like people that I think are in the know about movies. And then they're like, I have literally no idea what you're talking about. And I was like, oh, this is a movie to text Stuart about because he'll be the only person that's at least heard of it, whether or not he's actually seen it. Right. Well, I, I appreciate you bringing me because I, I mean, we were saying this a little bit before we started, but I, I haven't really talked a ton of horror with people this year. And, and it's uh, there's a lot to discuss, a lot to discuss. So, I'm, yeah, I'm excited. There's a lot of ground to cover. But uh, before we dive into our first best of category, um, you know, I ranted a little bit in the beginning of the intro about how I felt about this year in horror. But, you know, how do you feel about 2022 in terms of horror? Like, w- was this a, a successful year for horror? Was this a lacking year of horror? How did you feel overall? Uh, for me, it was a, a very successful year for horror. And I think on most fronts as well. I, I know we have people with some of the movies I'm sure we'll be discussing that weren't the biggest fans, but... Uh, I was pleasantly surprised with a lot of the big releases. Uh, there were a lot of indie releases that I was a fan of this year. Um, I'd say indie releases are the smaller scale movies that may not be as out there. This was a year with a lot of those for me. Um, but on the big scale too, I, I mean, we had, you know, I'm sure people are going to guess some of them, but we had, you know, big releases like Nope, which was fantastic. We had recently Violent Night. Uh, which was a nice little surprise. Uh, of course, X and Pearl, uh, double whammy, and those had relative, you know, big releases. And uh, yeah, it, I would say overall, it's been a great year for horror. That's the thing, right? When you get together with like people that actually like horror and enjoy horror, and it's always interesting to kind of just like start throwing out 
movies that really stood out amongst the year. And then when you kind of like will either be reading general publications uh, opinion of horror or even just, you know, people in general in your maybe immediate circle that like movies, but aren't maybe the most hardcore genre fans. And that's always it's always kind of a wake up call for me about just like the general perception of the genre. And so, again, you know, it's great to uh, to have you here to get to dive into some movies that, you know, some people are probably going to be able to guess are on our lists. But at the same time, I'm sure we have a, uh, a few surprises in store for people. Yeah, I definitely hope so, because there's definitely movies on here that I, I hope more people get to see and, and enjoy, because I there were some this year that either there was a couple that you brought up for me or that I had just never heard of and gave a shot because either maybe there was someone in the movie that I'm a fan of them as an actor or as a director. And uh, there was a, a lot of great, a lot of great stuff. But uh, let's dive into our first category. Since you are the guest, do you want to pick the first category? Let's start with a, with a, with a fun one. I guess. <laughs> like a, uh, how about start with like best killer or monster? I think that'd be a, sure. be a good starter. What was your favorite monster or killer of the year? I, I love I pick it and it's one of the ones that I'm like eh, there's a, some good ones I think <laughs> I feel like we're both going to be I, just like editing our Google Docs or our notepads right. the entire time of just like oh man this needs to be number one or maybe this is you know an honorable mention there's going to be a lot of uh, back and forth I'm sure there is and I, the reason I like the two that I'm kind of going back and forth with so much is just because they were, they're like on such opposite ends but I guess I'll I, I, I guess my main pick would be uh, Pearl most likely just because of, I mean, first off, like we've talked about how cool it was having, you know, a, a prequel sequel after this first release in the same year. Um, and Mia Goth, I mean, my God, I mean, there's no denying that she was amazing in, in both. Yeah. So uh, I feel because of that, like she would be my pick. Obviously, there are some other ones that are there that aren't necessarily a person. But um, yeah, I'd say Pearl. Yeah, for sure. I mean, just to what you had said a minute ago, right? I think that it was so incredibly cool to not only have a slasher come out this year from a director who, you know, has not been in film for a while, right? I think Ty West took a break and was in TV for a good while. And to have him come back with not only one horror film, but two in the same year and having a third entry, hopefully sometime early. I forget if they even announced when Maxine is releasing, but I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be like the for the first quarter of uh the new year but like to just have that come out of you know left field and then to have him take pearl the you know prequel and it being a film that is very different than x right but at the same time it feels like a natural origin for that character right and i think that that is a character that he was able to take and it's not just that you know she has these really brutal and shocking kills which are definitely stellar and a great example of you know practical work but at the same time, like ties a greater significance to that character in a way that, I mean, how many directors make a horror film like that, but don't necessarily have the option to actually, you know, flesh out that backstory more. And if anything, when you go and watch Pearl, immediately go back and rewatch X and all of a sudden you just kind of have this new appreciation for X um, and just seeing kind of the world building and character building that's in that, that, you know, I described it as a slasher, but I would be hard pressed to naturally kind of refer to it as that to somebody that didn't know what X was, um, just because I think there's a little bit of a deeper cut there. And again, Pearl is very different than X, but at the same time, kind of 
feels like the natural starting place for that character. Ag agreed. It's, it's, it's bizarre, too, because, I mean, first off, it, you do think, especially with horror lately, when that sequel comes, it's just you're probably going to most likely get more of the same. And we didn't get that at all. And then, yeah, and then to top it off, they're both really competently made movies. You know, it, this could have easily been one of those where he had like a really solid first one and then just kind of, you know, slopped together some sequels. Uh, and that just wasn't the case. And I think probably bringing Mia Goth in to be more involved was a, a big plus. And uh, I'm, 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 I mean, needless to say, especially from our our discussion episode of X, I'm, I'm very excited to see what, what else is coming. Yeah. What, uh, what do you, what is one of your favorite kills from either X or, uh, in Pearl? Oh, well, <laughs> I mean, you could, you probably have more than one. What's, uh, what's one or two standouts? Yeah. I mean, I, it's funny too, because some of the like best ones are almost not even necessarily the kills you see, but just the build up to the kill. Like the at first, like, like the major kill with like the alligator with Britney Snow, like, you know, like, you know, that's coming, but how it plays out and how it's done is just very well done. And like, I, I would say, you know, I would say it was probably, it's probably one just because especially when you watch Pearl and stuff like that, some of it takes such a different shift in perspective, but like, even like Pearl's well, I mean, not to go into spoilers, but <laughs> damn it. Uh, you know, like the end of X becomes a little bit more like, huh? I mean, like it doesn't take away from like, she's like this murderous killer, but it is a little bit more like, damn, <laughs> like, yeah. that's a rough way to, <laughs> you know, to go. Um, and yeah. And the practical works really good. Like the, the, I'd say another one just with practical effects lately, uh, and it reminded me a little bit of, uh, I think you've seen Green Room, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, you know, that's a that's a top 10 movie for me. I absolutely love same. that movie. And uh, there's a scene in this that I, I kind of had that same, a little bit of reaction with uh, Jenna Ortega. She gets her hand messed up. Oh, Jesus. And that poor girl. I know, <laughs> my God. And it kind of brought me back to that because there's a scene in that movie with an arm that gets an injury. And it's like, it looks so good that I was like, oh, geez, <laughs> like, okay, let's move on. Um, but yeah, I would say probably. And even Pearl's first kill in X, just because it it it, it is so brutal. And up until that point, there's really not a hint of how violent this movie is going to be. And it and it definitely caught me off guard. So I, I, I'd, I'd actually probably say her first like official kill because it kind of gives you that like, oh, they, they're going to go there. Uh. Well, I think that that's a great kill, not only from the way that it's shot and, you know, the the brutality of it, which is shocking at that point. Right. You know, kind of obviously know where this film is headed. But at the same time, like the way in which that comes out of kind of nowhere and it is so brutal and so savage, it is shocking in a way that is like kind of jolts you back into the reminder that, oh yeah, this is a horror film. People are going to get got. Right. Um, but I think that what I really like about that scene is that my appreciation for it grows after I watched Pearl, right? Because right. the first time you're watching it, you don't have the context really for who this person is. It's kind of like, oh, this is some crazy dementia riddled person that's just snapped and killing people. Right. But in getting more context for this character and the significance of, you know, this dance that she does, it makes for a scene that is incredibly tragic, 
for both, of course, the victim, <laughs> but also the killer to a certain extent, right? Not to say you completely sympathize with them or sympathize with them at all, but at the same time, having that context, it just kind of reinstills the fact that this is a very tragic figure. It's not somebody that is um, completely sympathetic, but I think that you know having that background of the significance of actions elevates that scene to more than, oh, this is just some woman that's like, crazy and dancing right right which is why i'm always happy to talk about these movies with you because anytime i talk about because it is one of those characters it's like you, you can't you obviously can't really just like you can't really root for them necessarily because of what she's doing and the reasons why but you do see that there is a person struggling under there and you know her performance especially with pearl and her breakdown in that movie where you're like i mean you know there is you know that sweet you know, young, innocent woman that's just kind of curious about the world. And then when you see like where everything goes and her turn, it does make it that much more tragic. And once again, you know, it's like, I, I won't defend her obviously, but it makes her as far as a character, very interesting and you know, multi-layered. Mm. So it's, it's, fun. Sounds it's like, nice to sounds watch like trying her. To defend, yeah. <laughs> trying to defend murder. There, I think, Stuart. you know, you know, I'm going to be real. <laughs> it's watching the sister-in-law get chopped up with an ax. You know, that's actually what I wanted. That was it. You know, and that escalated. <laughs> that was also actually a a, a, a decently sh done kill because it's not even really the gore is not even a focus in that scene. It's more right. her, her, like when she starts slowly running. That whole yeah. one like take is so well done. But um, well, that was the thing, right? Is and you mentioned it uh, a few minutes ago, where it's like it's more about the build up to the scenes. It's more specifically, I think, in uh, Pearl. Right. Because there aren't a lot of kills in that movie. And it's not necessarily to say those kills that are in it are, I don't want to say not original, but you know what I mean? It's stuff that you've kind of seen in other films before, right. but it's more about the way in which Ty West has the buildup and also the framing. Because that scene where she acts as a sister in law is terrifying because she starts out, you know, just walking and then you can't even see her for a moment, right? Because the way that the camera swings around that sort of bendy uh, trail or walkway up to the house. And then you see her slowly start to pick up momentum, momentum, and then running full speed. And it, it's more about just the way in which Ty West facilitates that scene rather than, you know, you've seen how many people get hacked to death with axes in horror films. You probably could. It's countless, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so it's more about the way in which that he is capturing the moment rather than the actual kind of moment itself, if you will. Yeah, no, definitely. It, it is a testament to it because it... This is one of those things, I, you know, a lot of people, they don't want to put in the effort in a lot of, you know, whether it be mainstream or not horror movies where the killer is really pretty one dimensional. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. There's a lot of horror movies I love where the killer is just a, they are a killer and they got to figure out how to survive this horrible, you know, it's, this a, whole, dude yeah, it's a dude in a mask <laughs> and they're just trying to get the hell out of it. Where in yeah. this, it's like, yeah, I mean, she's a, she's absolutely lost her mind, and she is a <laughs> crazy murderer. But you do see the humanity shine through, and that's and that you know is, it definitely just goes to show Mia Goth as an actress. Um, I have a feeling that we're going to be unpacking a little bit of uh, a little bit more of Mia Goth's performance in those films, and uh, maybe. Uh, X or Pearl itself, but uh, before we get to my pick, what were a few honorable mentions that you had of favorite monster or killer? Okay, so my second one, which I, for me, there's kind of different levels as to why I, I, I like this one so much, but it is Art the Clown. 
Yep. Uh, it is not easy today to have to to create an iconic horror villain. It mm. really isn't. I I mean, like you have one. Some of them become memes or. Like I mean, like like you did, like I would say the last one that kind of got a lot of traction was probably Slenderman, at least to my my yeah. in my mind. And he's not really a slasher type, right? But when you think about him, you know, you always jump to Leatherface, you know, Jason, mm-hmm. Freddy. Uh, so to have a new horror, I'm almost at the point you could almost call him a horror icon at this point. Oh, I would. And he's a hundred. I think he's a hundred percent a horror and, icon. Yeah, and, and David Howard Thornton is fantastic. Uh, I mean, he's, I mean, this is something that I'm sure is going to come up a bit, but uh, the Terrifier 2 was a huge step up from the first. Oh and Ma- Massive compared to the first and uh, astronomical compared to the short, in my opinion. Yeah, and, but the thing that has, sh- sh- like, you know, been that shining example of what is there, even like when it came to the shorts in the first movie was him. And how you have this 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 killer, who is a f- fucking monster. <laughs> you know, there's no he is a sick fuck. I you know what I mean. And somehow an understatement, but yes, and I agree. He somehow still manages to have these because he you know he's got that mime setup going on, and he's like just doing these horrendous things and he'll still find some random moments in there that I, he'll get a chuckle out of me just from how he's acting and doing something. Uh, and in terrifier too, he did that again. Like he's do, he, (laughs) we'll go more into it probably, but he does (laughs) some shocking things in terrifier too, but his, he's just so like he's so invested like I, I know some people are like he doesn't say anything it's just like a mime clown like there's so many subtleties to that that he does that I think people overlook and the yeah. makeup also amazing it's great <laughs> yeah. makeup which I, I Damien Leone does Leone does mm-hmm. so uh, he's one I won't go too much further with that because I'm sure we that might come up more and uh, another couple just quick shout outs were uh, did you see the cursed I did not. I'm pissed because that was one on my list that uh, I had a lot of people tell me was like kind of channeling uh, throwback like hammer horror movies. Um, and that was one that uh, unfortunately I didn't get to. I'm sure I'll make that excuse several more times. Today, but... <laughs> no, you're good. Um, so I'll just say the creatures in that. Um, I really love the design work and they did a mix of CGI and practical. Uh, it was oh, a really, nice. really good movie for people who haven't seen it. Um, but I was going to put the creatures on that and then uh, the full, I, 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 the Nope UFO, which we want to, I got, you know, mm-hmm. I, yep. I, I keep forgetting <laughs> the name or Jean Jacket. Jean Jacket. Right. Yep. Uh, I think Jean Jacket, great design. And the other one is the entity reveal and smile. I think were one's worth mentioning. Oh yeah. Yeah. So much for, a, <laughs> for so sure. much for a couple, <laughs> but those I gotta, ones I, I wanted to say shoot man. out there. Yeah, no, those are great shouts. Um, I just showed Smile to a couple of my buddies recently that hadn't seen it, and I get as much enjoyment out of, like, I think you and I enjoy that movie probably more than uh, maybe most people did. I don't know. I've seen a lot of hate for that movie recently. I, I have Just too. people that were kind of not hot on it as we were, but at the same time, like, I enjoy just watching my friends' reactions to that movie almost as much as I enjoy that movie <laughs> just because of the wild directions it goes in. But yeah, those are... 
those are definitely all great shouts i think for uh you know for honorable mentions of favorite monster favorite killer well uh, yeah yeah no thanks man yeah i i definitely am actually looking forward to watching my, my brother hasn't seen it yet um so oh, I'm, okay, I'm gonna plan go. on watching it with him and maybe his uh, if we really want to try to creep some people out get her get his fiance in there too maybe <laughs> that's <laughs> a holiday watch a, if i ever it's heard it's a great one. christmas film great christmas film. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah how how about your pick sir so this was a, again one of the categories that I changed at the last minute but I think my favorite monster monsters of the year uh, would be the Cenobites from the Hellraiser remake oh, that's a good uh, one I, uh, see that's one I would I think eh, that that's a great one yeah man that's such a a tall order right you know I I would never want to ever be in a situation where someone offered me the reins of an IP as uh you know beloved as Hellraiser because it's such an easy trapping to fall into like, well, you know, they haven't made a good one of these in what, 20 years or whatever it is. And so, you know, this could have easily been a reboot that too heavily rests on the laurels of the success of the first two films. Right. Right. Um, and granted, the bar is so astronomically low, <laughs> thanks to the what half dozen shitty directed uh, DVD sequels that they made. There's but some duds. What, There's definitely some duds. Yeah. <laughs> Again, an understatement, I think. Uh, somebody that just started diving into that franchise past two um, and, you know, has had to have this kind of like disclaimer with buddies where it was like, if you're going to come over and we're going to watch a bad movie, like you have to bring a good amount of beer for us to get through this because otherwise you're going to be looking at me like, what the hell is this? Why are we watching this? Um, but I think overall, you know, what David Bruckner is able to do with the Cenobites is this really fantastic combination of, you know, paying homage to, of course, the origins of it, right? That being Clive Barker's original film, his, of course, the entire expansive universe of his books and whatnot, but it's still having the originality and more importantly, the variety, I think, of different and varied designs of the Cenobites, um, this was something that, you know, I was just expecting them to kind of like carry on with Pinhead, which, you know, not to say that the priest played by Jamie Clayton isn't, uh, you know, that's the inspiration clearly, but they build from, you know, Doug Bradley's original Pinhead and design and really do make it something special with this new Hell Priest leader. But they don't stop there, right? You have the sort of the other uh, accompanying Cenobites. And while, you know, you have a chatter, uh, which is very similar to the original one, at the same time, all the other Cenobites are different and varied in, you know, I would I would argue more grotesque uh, designs and whatnot. You know, just this disgusting blending of, uh, of flesh and pins and uh, strange orifices <laughs> and, uh, you know, bone and muscle being exposed. It's truly ghastly stuff, and uh, I'm just so impressed with the fact that they were able to, you know, take that sturdy foundation, but expand on it in ways that feel natural, right? I think those are all designs where as soon as I finished watching the movie, I was like, oh, these are probably characters or designs that have been in other Hellraiser movies. And then I looked into it, and it's like, no, outside of, you know, the priest, which clearly, you know, I think they do enough to differentiate it from Pinhead, but at the same time, a lot of that has to do, I think, with Jamie Clayton's performance. At the same time, though, you know, the other ones are so varied in ways that, you know, they probably couldn't have done back in the day, but at the same time are grotesquely unique enough that uh, they really do stand out in a way that uh, it just, it makes for a film that, while the human element, 
I don't find to be very interesting or engaging, the Cenobites deliver in such a big way that I would love to see, you know, a, an immediate continuation of uh, Bruckner's kind of crack at Hellraiser, whether or not he returns. Um, I think that anybody that has a proper studio backing like he does has these new sort of creatures to play around with that could be used in some really, uh, you know, further grotesque and interesting ways. Yeah, I, I mean, that was my thing with that movie, which I, we, I think we've talked a little bit about before, but the, the, the most important thing in a Hellraiser movie is the Cenobites, and they killed it with the Cenobites. Uh, I, like you, I, the, the human element of it was just kind of okay. It was just there. Um, and they definitely could have used more Cenobites. Uh, a lot of props to Jamie Clayton, for sure, because to come up after Doug Bradley as the new Hell Priestess, you know, it's it's... That is not a, a small order, you know, talking about like horror icons and she did great. And I love, yeah, like I, I loved that they, inst- instead of looking like they all came out of like a sex shop and put on some BDSM gear, they actually like, <laughs> right. they just kind of had flesh made into clothes or, you know, or it's just their flesh stretched or whatever. And like cause some of them in this one, which took me back, because even in like in the originals and stuff, this was the only one where I had a moment where I was like looking at someone I'm like that. That must be just the worst circumstance to turn into, you know, right. if you're going because they have a, a scene at the end with a character that turns and you get to see the process. Mm. But there's yep. some of them and you see their design and you're like, that is gnarly shit. So uh, that's a great, great choice. Yeah, it's the type of thing where you're kind of like, man, I don't know who designed these, but they are one sick fuck. And I mean that with all the admiration in the world for a horror film. 100%. You know, it's the type of thing where when you go back and rewatch it, you almost want to like pause to now you can kind of just like your brain is playing catch up with what you're looking at. Because every time I've so I've watched this now probably three times uh, through rewatch for the podcast or, you know, just showing it to buddies that were like, oh. Hellraiser is one of those slasher franchises. And I was like, well, not really slasher, but if you want to jump into Hellraiser and you're not, you know, accustomed to it, this would probably be the easiest jumping off point for somebody that maybe isn't as invested in 80s horror like, you know, some of us are. But at the same time, you know, it's funny you mentioned them not just being these like leather freaks, um, (laughs) which is how, you know, some people have described them. But it was funny. I read in an interview that they said that they originally were going to go in that direction but they consulted with Clive Barker and he was like, we're in 2022. Like that is not as shocking as it was in whatever, 1980, whatever that was when the original came right. out. Right. It's all, it, it went from being very taboo back then to like now where it's just like, Oh, that's <laughs> everybody's got the internet. That's not exactly the most taboo thing out there anymore. But if anything, that kind of sells the idea of like just how, tortured and horrified these creatures are and seeing them, you know, get to do this pairing between practical work and of course CGI uh, has made something that is, uh, you know, a new terrifying generation of Hellraiser. But, uh, you know, I've gone on long enough. Here are a few of my honorable mentions for favorite killers. Of course, I'm a huge Texas Chainsaw Massacre fan and I know that most people didn't dig the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre this year. But as I said on when I was on Nuclear Fridge, I really dig the portrayal of Leatherface in this one of capturing sort of his ties to family and how that is his drive. And he's not just this bumbling killer, but a bumbling killer in this series that, uh, you know, family has a great deal to do with his motivations. Also, uh, the mad god, Beastie Yeri, 
Uh, all the creatures and monsters that were in that movie, I think, are terrific. There's too many and uh, too many stellar ones for me to, you know, single out any particular. Uh, I'll say the finale of Men, whatever that creature, oh, that, that continually that gestating uh, pregnant creature. Oh, man. So fucking wild. Uh, and if anything, you know, getting to see my roommate's reactions to that was uh, was magical, to say the least. I unfortunately watched it by myself, but I did think like, man, I have a couple <laughs> friends that like, hate horror and I would have loved to just see their reaction <laughs> to what it is. Yeah. You well, know? you definitely have to do that at some point because it is uh, it's well worth sitting through that again. Yes. But uh, I also had Art the Clown on mine. I co-signed what you said, and I'm sure that we'll dive into him a little bit more later. And f- last but not least is uh, Isabel Furman as Lena in uh, Orphan First Kill. Again, came back all these years later and absolutely crushed that role in a way that felt familiar, but completely original uh, with the kind of direction that that movie goes. But yeah, that was my uh, my honorable mentions for favorite monsters and killers. Great, great picks. Uh, some of those are also going to probably be mentioned again by me for some other categories. <laughs> <laughs> That's the fun thing about this, right, is that I think that we're going to be diving into a lot of the stuff that we mentioned, but at the same time, I'd like us having enough options for honorable mentions to kind of get through because, you know, as I said in the beginning, we're not going to be able to cover everything. Already, I know that this is going to be a longer episode just because you and I uh, (laughs) love, you know, ranting and raving about horror. But at the same time, you want to at least give a shout out to uh, some movies that we can't go into as much detail as maybe we would when we're not recording, but uh, at the same time, just giving them their uh, their shout for the year. Yeah, I mean, definitely. There's going to be things on here I that we won't be talking extensively about that I probably could talk extensively about that <laughs> I would just hope that from, you know, just recommendations people would go check out. For sure. But uh, in diving into our next category, uh, it seems like the natural next one after favorite monster killer would be favorite use of practical work. Okay. Uh, I would say this one is is pretty straightforward to which one I give it to, but it's not like the typical like use. But I mean, I um, I, I don't know how I couldn't say Mad God. Like, <laughs> I mean, You're, that was mine as okay. well. So I know I have the right guess because we we have the same frame of mind like, for this. I, I, I'll, I'll give the quick shout out ones in, in a second, but yeah, I mean, everything that Phil Tippett does is uh, in that film is astonishing. Uh when I was watching it, I would recommend that movie to people who are just film buffs that want to see something impressive. The stop motion in that and everything that's done is, I mean, it's beautiful in its own way. It's like, there's some grotesque shit in it, but it is so impressive. Uh, And like to the end, like I, I, I wouldn't even, even necessarily, I mean, for me, it was 100% one of the most impressive movies I've seen this year. Um, and I really was taken aback just like how much detail is in this movie. And on a rewatch, I, I, this is one of the ones I rewatched. And just the little things in the background that are there that he had going. And it's astonishing. So that was like my for sure in terms of just practical work being done. Um and it, I guess as far as just, I mean, if you want me to just throw out the like quick mentions, cause I didn't, there were uh, the other two are, I think are also pretty easy for me to jump to, but I mean, one would definitely be terrifier too. Uh, the gore in that movie is astonishing. <laughs> I feel like at 30, I knew what I like, I knew the limit or the ceiling of like gore in film. 
and that movie is just like uh actually you have no idea what you're talking about like we're not only gonna shatter that glass ceiling of what is possible in terms of gore and films and just kind of turn your world upside down in that regard yeah i mean that's once again that's gonna probably come back up but uh the practical work in that movie is insane and the level of detail they go into for it, you know, depending on your likes of horror is a good or bad thing. Uh, and then the other one that I wanted to give a shout out to, which I thought would be like <laughs> goriest and in, in tone, maybe even still fits that way. But uh, the practical work in the sadness. Uh, oh, yeah. That movie. Fantastic show. That movie is uh, uh, that is a watch. <laughs> Like, well, it's so funny you bring that up almost in the same breath as like Terrifier 2, right? And that Terrifier 2 takes violence to the absurd angle, right? It is absurd. It's so over the top. It's so gratuitous that, you know, I, I understand why it's not for a lot of people. But if you're like a horror fan that is so inundated with, you know, violence and gore and these types of movies, that movie almost turns into like it does quite literally turn into like a gory version of Tom and Jerry, it, yeah. or itchy and scratchy, 100%, 100%. right? Hundred percent, hundred percent has this comical value to it that I showed it to one of my roommates who is like kind of so-so on horror, and as grotesque as that movie is, they're still laughing because of how over the top it is. But then you mentioned the sadness, which for me was a movie that I really really enjoyed, but at the same time, there's an approach in, to the violence in that that kind of like made me appreciate that horror movies can still be shocking in their violence in a way that is uncomfortable. And I don't necessarily need to see a great deal of it like all the time, but at the same time, it kind of reset my, I don't know, my view of like the capacity horror has for graphic violence, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, I a hundred percent get what you mean. It's, I mean, yeah, two completely different sides of the of the <laughs> gore coin <laughs> of the gory yeah, the gory coin because <laughs> um, you know me and gore. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, like, Terrifier too. I saw some people were talking about how that movie was mean spirited, and I just uh, think it's it's yeah. <laughs> like it's is it mean spirited? Uh, yes, but the, there is very much a tone of they know that it's ridiculous too. And that, you know, you have this really larger than life, you know, killer clown that's just doing these over the top kills Um, where with the sadness, there are a couple kills in there where after they're done, it's like, what was the meaning of living? (laughs) 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 Where am I? Like, you'll have like an existential crisis at this depressing thing you just saw. Um, And also incredibly well acted, too. I mean, that movie, I, 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 it's not on my list a ton. It almost should be just because it did have an impact when I watched it. Um, mm. cause I watched it on your recommendation and I remember your first thing was just like, don't eat while watching it. And I was like, I, okay. <laughs> and I did yeah. it and I'm glad I did it. <laughs> yeah, man, I could go on about that movie. That movie, I feel like it finally came to shutter after it'd been in the festival circuit and stuff. And it was like, people talked about it. And then I feel like it hasn't made a lot of lists. That movie should definitely be on more lists. I feel agreed. Um, and you know, it, to be fair, it's an honorable mention on mine. It's not going to be one of my, uh, you know, best of picks, but at the same time, you know, it's my honorable mention for practical work. It's my, you know, I think that it takes infection horror and kind of just like grabs you by, you know, both shoulders and gives you the worst headbutt of your life because it is uh, a very upsetting watch. But at the same time, you know, there is a great deal of thought and precision that goes into executing on that, um, which I really, really appreciate it, even if 
it's not a film I'm going to necessarily be rewatching it very frequently, but it is one that I think is worth everybody's time. Yeah, it, it was it was nice because it, kind of, it gave me similar vibes to which is I mean it's obviously to preference, but it kind of reminded me of of Martyrs in terms of the violence is really brutal to watch, but you can tell there's a craft to what's being done that it doesn't feel needless. Like you, there's a reason why you're seeing what you're seeing and something that they want you to feel when you're watching. Um, there are other movies that ha- that go way beyond what's needed <laughs> for the scenes that they have, but those movies, like, yeah, I, I, they're not movies I really can recommend. But if you are in really into horror and don't mind watching some of the more extreme ends of it, is definitely worth worth watching. Well, this is why I'm so glad I had uh, Stuart Gorehound Gears on, right? I mean, this is... <laughs> this is right up my alley. No, I, <laughs> I think that, no, it's interesting when you talk to people that maybe, and I don't, don't say this like it's a badge I wear, but like people that are not as hardcore fans of horror, right? It's when you talk about films like Terrifier 2 or The Suffering, or The Sadness, rather. <laughs> you can tell that I've been replaying The Suffering this entire week. Um it's the type of thing, though, when you have gore that is as grotesque and over the top, when there is the, you know, the quality of practical work that goes into that, the way that the scenes are framed, it doesn't feel needless, like we've been saying, right? It feels like a facet of art that you don't necessarily need to be exposed to with every single movie you watch or expect every movie to deliver on. But there is a quality there that makes it special in a way that is, you know, there's a quality and there's an appreciation for films that make you uncomfortable with their violence, I think something like Martyrs, right? I think this would definitely be a uh, a very close cousin of you know the French extremity movement, um, just because of the way that it goes all out. It feels unrestrained and uncensored, and uh, yeah, feels like it is able to go somewhere where most films either can't or most directors and creatives wouldn't want to go. Um, and I think that for a filmmaker, that I believe this is his first film. The sadness. I think that. I think that's his first film and that he had Damn. done music videos or something like that before this. But yeah, you know, it it was definitely a standout, uh, a standout for the year. And I would encourage everybody to check that out. This is why I love we get to ramble off our uh, honorable mentions, right? Because right. there's so many movies that it's like, well, you know, Matt, I don't think anybody can argue that Mad God is uh, is not in the top three of this category, if not, you know, both of our number ones, um, just because of how stellar, you know, the production design and quality of everything is. I was going to say, it's almost like an insult if you just, even if you hated the movie, just on a technical standpoint, it's like, how could you not give it to it? <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? I think that, and you know, it was my pick too. And I think that there have definitely been people I've talked to that have not enjoyed it as much because of the sort of vague nature of the story. The fact that it is very much like a mood vibes kind of piece. Mm-hmm. But the fact that you couldn't give this best of for this category just based on the sheer craftsmanship of it forget the fact that you know phil tippett's been trying to make this for 30 years right he's been starting and stopping and then this and that got in the way of making this film but just the level of craft and vision that comes through and not just that there's like creepy grotesque monsters and things but the variety again i keep coming back to that that's like one of my big things with a lot of horror films is that it's I won't say it's easy, but it's like there are capable directors that are able to capitalize on one element, whether it's like a monster or really lean into the gore for certain things. But with a film like Mad God, I mean, I couldn't even name the amount. That's why I referred to it as like the bestiary, right? Because there are so many creatures 
and monsters in this film that, you know, it's it seems like it's endless in terms of like the creativity that's in this. The variety of monsters and what they're able to do in their designs and what they're made out of, how they interact in the world. And I mean, I was watching it before we recorded just because I was like, man, I haven't watched that movie in a while. And I just want to make sure that if I'm going to be, you know, praising it this much, I need to have it fresh in my mind. And I mean, Jesus, I was just so blown away the second time, more so than I was originally because of just how it's a vision that you don't fully understand, but you can at least see how these fucked up creations are all in the same kind of universe, at least, or the same world. No, definitely. It it really is one of those things when like because when I rewatched it, um, and I think I even talked with you about it. Like for me, it's like watching almost like a you know uh, like 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 a tool music video onto yeah. like this like <laughs> yeah. horror yeah. hellbound extreme, and it's just so Im- impressive to 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 watch. But yeah, I mean, like as you said, I mean, like there's enough there, you know story-wise and design-wise and stuff to kind of just keep you invested, at least for me. But the other thing that, you know, you're basically going on this descent to hell. And I also, I mean, even the creatures, you know, mostly, but I was also impressed by the variety in, in environments. Uh, you know, it's not a long movie, and there's so many different areas you they explore with hell. Uh it really is a, a spectacle on the eyes. And I, I mean, it's not necessarily, that doesn't, once again, like it's not necessarily means, oh, it's all really pretty and fun to look at. Some of it's very much the, on the opposite end of that, of a pretty, but some of it is tad upset. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but it's just like to see the amount of work that went into it. Like, I, I, like I would, like, like I was saying, like if I came out of that movie, not liking the movie, just looking at it at it at, from a, a film standpoint and what Phil Tippett accomplished, it is mm. it's, it's it's huge. It feel it you know it. Some people might roll their eyes, but it feels like movie magic. It feels like the type of thing that this should have in your mind. You're like, well, this could be interesting for maybe like I don't know a short right 10, 15 minutes. You could see this being like a passion project of his over all these years. The fact that it is almost a 90 minute movie and it's not to say, you know, the entire thing is as well. No, see that uh, I can't discredit it in that regard. I'll say there might be one section that drags a little bit for me. Overall, though, you know, his commitment to having this singular vision for something that is, is as varied while still very much, you know, from this hellish toolbox of his mind uh, <laughs> and using all of his talent over his entire career for all of these films that he played such a major role in with that stop motion work and just to see something that you've never seen before again you know not to keep aging myself but at 30 it's kind of like oh i have a general idea of like what to expect from certain movies and this just kind of like blew my mind in a way that uh, i very seldomly have done and i think that you know even if it does have this sort of vague narrative it's never not captivating visually or tonally um you know I'm sure uh, I'll have a chance to talk about the score a little bit later, but it's this complete package that, again, I just find to be so singularly unique in a way that so frequently uh, kind of sidesteps films that try to go out on these creative endeavors. Um, There was recently, I think it was last year, there was, I think it was called Zeke and Zed. It was like a puppet uh, zombie movie that was kind of going for something similar to this, but it was a film that while it had really great puppetry work in it, when you try to make that into an almost 90 minute movie, 
it kind of just falls apart at a certain point. Mm -hmm. Whereas with Mad God, it really does sustain its narrative kind of drive and world and everything for the entirety almost of its run, um, which is definitely worth uh, celebrating. Yeah, no, 100%. It's a a, a art form you're not going to see often anymore, unfortunately. I mean, I should yeah. say unfortunately. I mean, it's a lot of friggin' work. You know, I, it's not one of those. Like, I, I yeah. see why people don't do it, but when people but, do, I mean, it's it's always you know, I, like I'm one of those people. You know, you have movies that like to come out like, uh, like Kubo or even like Chicken Run and stuff like that. And I, you know, I I still think those movies are you know impressive by today's standards yeah. because of, you know all the work that's going into them and mm. it's, I, I, you appreciate that there's that much craftsmanship going on outside of is this an entertaining movie or, you know, the writing for sure. Um, yeah. So no, I, that's, it is a, one of the great movies of this year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess my honorable mention for practical work would probably be, we've mentioned it a few times now, terrifier Two, right? Just a completely <laughs> deranged, uh, dedication to, uh, to kills and whatnot. And again, Probably going to chat about that one a little more depth uh, later on, even though I feel like we've talked about that for a good chunk of the podcast already. <laughs> Definitely but, some uh, specifics. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. An understatement. Um, but yeah, you know, also probably, again, I'm probably going to annoy people. Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think that there's a lot of great kills in that uh, that have practical work that, you know, for a film that got dumped to Netflix, I don't know it necessarily gets its uh, its fair shake in that regard or praise. Um, but yeah, that was going to be our best of practical work for the year. But uh, let's talk sequels. You know, this was a year that, as we mentioned uh, earlier, you know, there were a lot of legacy sequels this year. Yes. And I'm sure after I list these, I'm going to forget a few. But, you know, you had Scream, Halloween. You had, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Hellraiser. Uh, you also had a new Predator film. Uh, you also had Orphan First Kill. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this was a film, a year that w- had no shortage of sequels. So, Stuart, what was your favorite sequel of the year? This was another tough one. Uh, I unfortunately, and I and I am a fan of the series, but I haven't seen Scream, the newest Scream yet. Uh, oh, man, that's I, I know, me. I know. I just was, I, you know, I for some reason, I, stuff was going on. I didn't go to see it in theaters. And then I just, I just haven't seen it. And it, it, I want to, because I, I, I've heard good things for the most part. Um, we'll have to uh, compare notes on that one. Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely would look forward to talking about that. Um, and also just a quick thing, too, because I, I, I don't know if we talked, I, I did rewatch Texas Chainsaw, the Netflix one. Oh, nice. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, if there is, any, that movie does get Leatherface pretty, pretty much dead on. Like I think Leatherface in that movie is solid for the most I've converted part. Converted another a little. One. Well, I, you convert me with Leatherface <laughs> for sure. And yeah. and and I I think I've even said on our podcast the last kill is great. It's so fun. Yeah. Like, it's so over the top, but it's it it, it gets you. <laughs> um, yeah. But I would say probably for me this year uh, it's Halloween ends. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> even though better than I thought it would be. Um, uh, for me it was between. Uh, see now I'm doing it again. I'm just gonna say it's it, it just because it's it to come out and with a bang, <laughs> not to be repetitive. It's probably Pearl. There you go. But okay. Prey and Orphan First Kill are very close on there. Um, hmm. I was uh, Orphan First Kill, like it just I I was surprised at the direction it went. Yeah. Uh, Isabella Fuhrman, I I mean, I'm, I'm, she's going to come back up. 
<laughs> Spoiler. Yo, uh, yeah. She, uh, <laughs> she, it's like she just, it's like she never left, which is surprising right. considering how long it's been since the first film and she's in her 20s now. Uh, it, 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 yeah, and it manages to have an, another twist. I didn't expect it to have a twist. I just, if we had done a best, if you and I had planned to have a like biggest surprise of the year, oh. it would 1000% be the twist in Orphan First Kill because the fact that they're able to replicate the, the sort of shocking twist magic of the original in a way that's completely different is, you know, is one of the best feats of the year, I'll say, because again, talk about tall orders. You don't know whether or not, you know, it's so far removed from the original. Is the actress going to be able to capitalize on this character in the same way? Is the creative team behind the film otherwise going to be able to, you know, have a twist that's, you know, different than just what was in the original, right? Again, talk about resting on the laurels of past successes. And then the fact that they're able to, you know, capitalize in a way that is completely shocking in a similar way to that twist in the original film was just like mind-blowing it, it is i i mean i thought the big thing for this movie was going to be just you know her coming back after so long and how they're going to really manage to make her still seem like i mean obviously a lot of that is the, her acting but i use right. for me I, I mean once again when it comes to more mainstream horror movies it, i'm at a point i kind of expect them just to do something relatively simple like in this it was like oh right. we're gonna see her have a bunch more kills from her past like that yeah. was what my headspace, right? Yeah, and that was my headspace for the movie. So when it wasn't that, uh, yeah, if we had a yeah the best best twist, this move that hundred percent would have been it. Um, but yeah, I, I would say, yeah, I, I think that uh, prey was also really well done. Um, and but yeah, those are the two that I think were really close with it. It's just once again with Pearl, I, like. It's one of those, like, it really, like, you don't, it, for people, if someone just watched Pearl, like, mm. without seeing X, because I, I mean, with us, I mean, we're big enough fans of X, I mean, obviously, you know, we have that connection with it, but I could see someone watching that and being completely entranced with just her descent into madness. Uh, So, with that, I mean, it's that, but I also was really big with Orphan and, and uh, Prey. And even Hellraiser, to an extent, with the Cenobite stuff. Like, I, it wasn't my favorite of them, but those Cenobites are amazing. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I mean, this is the thing, though, I think, with, uh, with X and Pearl is that Ty West, and granted, you know, he developed both of them back to back, right? This is not like he kind of just stumbled into success with X and then immediately was like, oh, we got to do a prequel. But at the same time, the fact that those movies are so tonally separate, but at the same time, they feel natural to the progression of that story. And if anything, it makes you appreciate the first film more once you watch Pearl. I mean, that's a major, major accomplishment. Think about all the, it's more so in like slashers, right? where they always want to do an origin story or something. And it's kind of like a shrug almost like think about even the Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, prequel that they did, which is just, I think it's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the beginning. That mm -hmm. movie is really just an excuse to see more Leatherface. It doesn't necessarily change my view of the character or really provide any substance to that character in a way that it makes me view it in a new, that character in a new light. Um, but I think with something like Pearl, again, as I said earlier, it provides so much more context to what happens in X that if anything, my appreciation of X grows more so after watching Pearl, just because of the character development that they do in Pearl. 
and the fact that it kind of just really does elevate everything that happens in X that, uh, you know, when you just go into X, it's kind of like, oh, this is creepy or weird, but you don't really think about it much more than that. It's more kind of just like this visceral reaction or reactionary. Mm -hmm. But once you see Pearl, it's like, oh no, this actually like has a basis in something other than shocking the audience, which if anything, making, seeing how they accompany one another, um, yeah, just makes that effort that much more um, remarkable and it makes me even more excited to go see Maxan next year. Yeah. Maxine. Same same here, man. I mean, and the other thing too with the tonal shift with, with Pearl, with X, because I think X, what adds to that like visceral reaction is the fact that the movie for the first like 30, 40 minutes is mostly just really funny. There's definitely yeah. like, <laughs> s- s- ca- like yeah. some serious character moments and building there, but a lot of it's just very funny. So when it goes down that route, it's like, oh shit. And then you watch Pearl and it just kind of reinforces where that ladder, the, the, you know, where X went at towards the end. And you go like, oh yeah, damn. <laughs> but yeah, those would, that'd be my pick with the honorable mentions for me. Um, but yeah. How about, how about you? What was your favorite sequel? So my favorite sequel is going to be Prey from Dan Trachtenberg. Uh, this was probably the movie that I showed to the most people in my friends group just because they were like, oh, you know, Predator is an easy sell. And to see the way in which they're able to take, you know, the Predator and not only do this kind of, you know, faux history, Fox history story narrative that previously you'd only ever seen anything like that in like the pages of Dark Horse comics, right? Mm-hmm. This kind of taking this creature sending them, you know, hundreds of years into the past and seeing how the people of that era contend with this, you know, this intergalactic hunter killer um, was like, again, a massive feat and something that on paper is a great idea, but like, how are they going to execute on that? And I found that they do the predator justice and make it original in a way that I don't think we've seen in a long while. You know, as much as I enjoyed something like Predator's, didn't necessarily care for the predator but at the same time you know is able to take this character or this creature and make it not only exciting and refreshing in a new way but also you know giving the same amount of thought and detail to the central protagonist you know who's played by amber midthunder um, who is not only a, a terrific actress who facilitates the you know the hunter protagonist that i think rivals a majority of the other protagonists across the entire franchise but also you know again you get to see a little bit of representation there right you get to have indigenous people facilitating the roles of a story that revolves around you know indigenous people uh, rather than you know maybe <laughs> having some white person do it or whatever but you have what feels like a respectable capture and portrayal of culture right from far back in the day but at the same time you know you get to pit them against this intergalactic, uh, technologically advanced being. But you have the combat play out in a way that really does sort of sort of just reinforce the fact that like, oh, this is the protagonist for a reason, right? It's not just like they get lucky or they're super strong or something, right? It's more about kind of empowering this character that largely is not empowered in their world, right? In their class and culture within their group. But, you know, is able to find empowerment and kind of being a rival, uh, a rival force to contend with the Predator um, in a way that made for some really fantastic fight sequences, I thought. And also just the way in which they downgrade the Predator 
So that way the movie isn't, you know, like 10 minutes long. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the fact that they're able to do that in a way that actually feels refreshing. It's not just that, oh, the Predator doesn't have plasma cannons or whatever, but they have slight amends to everything. Um, so it's still a very ferocious antagonist and monster, but at the same time, you know, it is not as super powered perhaps as past and present uh, Predators have been. Um, and, you know, Dan Trachtenberg, again, I was a huge fan of 10 Cloverfield Lane his ability to kind of dive into universes and to give them their own unique spin that we haven't seen before. And I think Prey largely did that. I'm not going to say it's my favorite Predator film or it's a perfect film in general or Predator film, but I think that he gave this a dash of originality that that franchise desperately needed if it was going to justify coming back for a second uh, a second time in as little as, I don't know, what was it? Within the last five years of The Predator. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you know, there's a, countless awesome scenes in that that are both you know focusing on the predator but also on um mid thunder's character right one of the coolest sequences i think is when she attacks the trapper camp mm-hmm. on her own yes. right she wants to free her dog and it it's a five minute scene i think and it's one of the best action scenes i think of the year just because of the physicality the choreography and the brutalness and the predator isn't even in the beginning of that section um but then, of course, the Predator also gets his shine, right? You have that entire sequence of him fighting not only the trappers where he gets to show all these new tools and gear at his disposal, but at the same time, you get that final fight between him and Mid-Thunder that uh, definitely allows his physicality and brutality to be shown off, but also her you know, cunning ingenuity and in how to fight something that um, is so much stronger than her, but at the same time, you know, is uh, equally as brutal. Well, that was definitely refreshing uh, for me as well at the end, because the thing with some, uh, especially when it comes to monster movies, is you get to an end and, you you know, whoever your protagonist is all of a sudden happens to be just as strong as the monster they're fighting, or they're put in a situation where you go like, you know, like, how, how would they manage this? Where in this movie, you know, she utilizes her weaknesses so well to get an upper hand, and it, it felt... Like, like when, yeah, when it came to that last confrontation, it's like, all right, let's go. And (laughs) the other thing that like, I just love about it is it sets up so much potential for what you could do with these predator movies in like different periods of time. And I absolutely love the predators design, you know, cause I mean, it's, there is the familiarity there for sure, but it definitely does not look like the typical predators we've seen. Like it has that look of it's an ancestor. And on top of that, I loved it's, it's, devices that it did have it's like they were just futuristic enough to go like oh that's still really badass for someone even in our current times but definitely dialed down from the plasma cannons and the crazy (laughs) you know thermal everything um so i yeah no it was definitely refreshing and i i hope we get more predator movies in these like time periods different time periods i think that'd be such a cool direction to go yeah, you and I talked about that a little bit. Um, I think previously, I can't remember if we record when we were recording one time. But yeah, like getting to see a character as iconic as either the Predator or even you know getting to see Xenomorphs potentially in the future and dropping them into these alt history settings um, again is like the type of thing that you would see periodically in like Dark Horse comics in the '90s. But back then, it wasn't necessarily feasible for film, and to see us get to a point where there's enough studio backing, there's enough fanfare behind it to actually get to finally see something like this 
you know, come to fruition is really fantastic. And uh, yeah, super exciting in a way that uh, made this one of the standouts of me for the year. I mean, licensing allows we could have. I mean, it never would happen, I'm sure. But if it did, I'd lose my mind. A Wolverine versus Predator movie. <laughs> yeah. I still will call for that to happen. Come on, Disney. Let it happen. <laughs> we got to hope the Disney overlords let it, let happen. it happen. It would be in their best Absolutely. interest. Absolutely. Don't connect it. Just let it be. It's like own little like Dark Horse Marvel comic little solo film. I'd, I'd be there in a heartbeat. Um, yeah, no, that's a great, great pick. What what were like some honorable mentions for you with the with sequels? So my honorable mentions, again, ad nauseum at this point, was Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I, again, really enjoyed that for the comeback for my boy Leatherface. I'm sure I'll have a, an honorable mention for one of his kills later on. <laughs> but also, as we mentioned, uh, Orphan First Kill, an amazing feat uh, that, I mean, not to say that it's uh, one of my favorites of the year, but it's definitely one of the most surprising films of the year that was able to have this kind of comeback for a character that was able to one up almost the sort of surprise factor of the original, which again, it was, I think, what, a 2008 film, mm -hmm. uh, the original, and just the fact that they're able to come back and it's like they didn't miss a beat in that regard was really awesome to see. Um, I'll say Pearl, of course, as we've mentioned, uh, for more reasons than one, <laughs> but also, um, you know, you mentioned earlier as a joke about Halloween Ends, which was a film that I despised the first time I watched it and really cooled on uh, the second time and third time that I watched it. And it's uh, a film that I think is far from perfect, but I think it's one of the most unique entries we've had in a good long while for the Halloween franchise. Even if I perhaps have some reservations about its place in David Gordon Green's trilogy, it is a type of film, though, that I think um, is far more unique and creative than a lot of slashers are willing to get uh, these days. Yes, no, for sure. It was it was it, it is such a bizarre movie. It is so bizarre. The choices made are bizarre. Like it shouldn't. Like like when people tell me they like like when, like even like when we've talked about her, especially with Matt, who uh, has gone so back and forth with that movie, it's it's dizzying. But it it is. It it doesn't feel like it really belongs anywhere, and in some ways that makes it more enjoyable to me. Like it's like does all these things I don't like, but it, I I it did things in this movie. I like if it was in another movie, I'd be like this was my least favorite part. Where in this movie, it kind of worked because it's just so not where I thought it was gonna go. Uh, bizarre movie, <laughs> but but I was entertained and like just like intrigued with like what the hell is gonna be going on in this movie <laughs> as it continues on. Uh, and and, I, and a, a, a little shout out to it. I, I thought it actually had some really good practical work. Oh, yeah. Especially Absolutely. the DJ scene. Uh, oh, Jesus. Yeah. yeah, well, that's the thing, right, is that they're... I don't know if they've released it yet, but I'm pretty sure there's supposed to be a... Um, uh, I don't know if it's a director's cut, but it's definitely got deleted scenes that have a bunch of extra segments of kills. And apparently that DJ scene goes on longer. Oh. Um, and it was like, oh, man, I can't imagine that sequence being any longer because that is definitely the uh, the best kill, I think, in that film. And it's, and it's pretty prolonged, even in the theatrical. Like, it's not like a it's not brief. Well, I'm pretty sure that there's a sequence with uh, the receptionist or something. Oh, okay. That, like, there's a kill there that they cut for whatever reason. Um, but, yeah, I think... I'm trying to think. There was one other 
sequel that I enjoyed this year, but it is eluding me for some reason. I'm sure it'll come up at some... Oh, of course, we've mentioned it now. Again, Ad Nauseam. Terrifier 2, I think, is definitely a sequel that... Yes. You know, explodes on the potential of that first film that, while I appreciate the practical work in that movie and, you know, Art the Clown being as iconic as he is, as we mentioned, that original film, though, I have a lot of faults with. And largely, while the sequel might be a little too long for its own good, that sequel capitalizes on that character in a way that you would, you know, you always wanted it to. Um, And it goes to some, you know, depraved places, but also the world building in that movie I thought was interesting, Mm -hmm. um, which I I would almost compare it. And I ranted about it on Twitter once about how it has a lot of similarities to like Jason goes to hell. Yes. Where it has this whole (laughs) like going to hell aspect. There's this sort of immortality slasher and resurrecting but then you have this, you know, really strong uh, final girl that, you know, uses like a magical blade basically to send this killer back to hell, um, which I thought was, a, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but that was what kind of came to mind. But the way in which that movie also plays with like character lineage and the sort of dream fantasy uh, world that is behind, it's kind of like the finer working of all the supernatural shit in that movie. But yeah, as I said earlier, we will be diving into, uh, into Terrifier 2 and a little bit more later. All right, well, let's dive into best scare of the year. Sounds good. Sounds good. Would you, would you like to go first on this one? Uh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I think uh, this one's going to be uh, like a three-parter potentially, which is slightly cheating, but no, uh, no, it's from a film that both you and I have a great deal of love for. And we actually chatted about on the podcast, and that would be Nope. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I think that the scariest scene from that film would definitely be the digestion um, yes. <laughs> where we get to get a look. Not only uh, we've seen quite a lot of the outside of jean jacket at this point in the film, but now we get a look inside um, and that made for a scene that was as if not more uncomfortable every time I've come back and rewatched this film, which has been quite a, quite a few times this year. You know, it's again, one of those movies that I, not only have to show like family members that are fans of Jordan Peele, even if they aren't necessarily big horror fans, but at the same time, like just seeing this with buddies that are horror fans. Um, And I think that this was a scene that again is why I'm so impressed with this film and that he's able to take, you know, UFOs, make them terrifying in a new way, expand on them in a way that, you know, we clearly know Jean Jacket is not a UFO, but this alien entity. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, at a certain point in the film, you kind of feel like you have an understanding of how it operates or what this the capacity for this creature is and how it operates. And then you get a look inside and you see that, oh, it's not just people like being swallowed and then, you know, that sucks. But you get to actually see the inner workings of it and you see these people that are like being compressed yeah. and consumed and it's almost like they're in kind of like a fun house that they can't get out of, right? The way that they're kind of like up against these walls and you can see sort of like the outlines of people's faces or limbs and whatnot. But what really does make that, you know, really claustrophobic and intense scene all the more terrifying is kind of just the screams and the sounds that people are making and the sort of the uh, the sounds that are coming from like them rubbing up against the internal sort of organs, if you will, of Jean Jacket. And it just makes for a scene that is so profoundly disturbing for, and it's probably not even that long. It's probably like a 30 second scene, but it is so incredibly uncomfortable. And 
it feels very different than all the other scenes in that movie. You know, there's two other moments, which I'm, we'll mention in a moment that are, you know, disturbing for different reasons. Um, but I just found that this digestion scene is one that is, um, you know, I would compare it to like Jacob's Ladder, if you're familiar with that movie, and that it takes this imagery that you don't necessarily understand what's happening once it begins and like your brain is playing catch up. But once you finally sort of like understand what's happening, it just makes it that much more, um, you know, fucked up. <laughs> yeah, that is a... An understatement with once it starts going into that. I think I know one of the other scenes you're going to be bringing up because that was one of my big honorable mentions as I've been kind of, I mean, honestly, I, I mean, it could even be like up there with my number one. I'm, I'm going back and forth still, <laughs> but uh, no, no th- th- that whole process of people being consumed in that movie is so like it. It, 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 I haven't been that claustrophobic in terms of like feeling of like how horrid, horrible it must be for these characters outside of maybe like the last time maybe it was like the descent. Very different situation, but they really managed to capture like that claustrophobic feel. And uh, yeah, I mean, kind of like what you were even saying too. Yeah, it's like, you know, one of those jumpy houses when it deflates and you're like, how the hell do I get out of this thing? <laughs> Except, you yeah. know, you're, you're not. And uh, what yeah. happens is not funny. <laughs> at all. Yeah. And again, like I bring it back to the sound design in this movie. Um, you know, it unfortunately it was definitely an honorable mention, I think, for you know, a category we'll get to in a little bit, but there's a quality to this movie that the first time you watch it, I found that I liked it, but I didn't enjoy it as much as I ha- I do now, based on the amount of rewatches I've had, just because there's small details that you, you know, pick up on with every rewatch. Initially, it's going to be the the significance of those objects that fall from the sky, right? The fact of what kills Keith David as a quarter, and initially it's kind of like random, what the fuck? But then once you learn more about why that is, it has this greater kind of horrifying significance. It's like, it's not just a quarter. That was something in somebody's pocket that got consumed by this, you know, this uh, entity that came from outer space. Later on, it's the sound design in terms of like the screams or the whistling that they hear. And initially you think it's just whistling, right? Because they're in this valley. And then you realize that it's the people being consumed that are just screaming in their last breaths of life, which if anything, it makes that whole environment that much more unnerving because the rest of the movie, if you hear any kind of whistling your brain is almost like, well, is that the valley or is that, you know, people that are, of course, been consumed by a jean jacket? Yeah, it's 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 rough. It's rough. It's not. It, it is. And I mean, that was like the, the thing with that movie, because I mean, as far as the other comparing it to like other horror movies on this list, uh, it's definitely one of those movies like I, I could, which is a great thing about it, especially with the rewatches with Nope, which is going to be coming up more. Um, <laughs> the it it totally works for a non horror audience. Um, but there is no denying that once it, you have the reveal of what it is, and you see, and you see the process, it, it, you I don't know how you couldn't think it's horrifying. You know, just putting yourself in their shoes. But it, it's 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 crazy. It's because like the movie too also has like that bit of like a more lighter tone. And honestly, yeah, I mean, the first time I watched it, I mean, I was like, oh, that would suck. But I wasn't like 
you know, I'm like still like was so invested in like what's going to be happening, what's going to go on with you know like you got Daniel Kaluuya and you know Kiki Palmer in them, and you're like, and and then we're on a rewatch when you're really really focusing on it and everything. It's like, man, that would really be horrendous, wouldn't it? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the thing. That's what's so amazing about the film in that you know he has taken what is always been a staple of horror seemingly, which is like UFOs, extraterrestrials. And it reinvents that genre in a way that makes it refreshing, unknowing, but at the end of the day, terrifying in a new way that when you go back and rewatch it and you finally are able to grasp the entire concept of what it is and all of these different things we've mentioned, it just it it completely kills that argument that I've seen online and even in you know publications where people try to argue like whether or not it's a horror film. It's like if you watch this movie not only once, but you know, on a rewatch. I don't see how you couldn't consider it a horror movie, even if it does have those lighthearted moments. You know, that's again, maybe people's misunderstanding of like the genre of horror. And this is I'm sure people are tired of me getting on my soapbox about. But it's like (laughs) horror can be a variety of things when people talk about like, oh, the sole purpose of horror is to be scary. It's like, uh, well, sure, at a surface level glance. But then when you think about horror films, they're granted most of them are like 90 minutes or less. How many of those movies are scary for the entire, the entirety of their runtime? Almost none of them, right. because you can't sustain that. And so Jordan Peele is somebody that I think is able to take the genre, make them terrifying, but have more to it than just that. If it was this kind of one-trick pony of being terrifying, the movie would have began and ended at that scene where he, um, uh, OJ sees those you know, Jupe's kids dressed up as the aliens, right? It's a tense that would have scene. been the entire movie, which is very tense, yeah. but then it has that moment of levity right. that doesn't kill the moment or doesn't kill the terror of the film because it's so much bigger than just that one moment. Yeah. No, I no I'll I'll jump on that soapbox with you. Um it, it's no, I, I don't like when people do that. I mean, I used to be in, in terms of like I just not really knowing how to because there are movies, some movies that there are so many elements going on that it is kind of hard to label them as like as one thing. Um, and one of the a great movie comparisons, which we even we talked about even on the podcast, is you know movies like a movie like Jaws, uh, an, an adventure film. Sure, uh, there's some horrifying shit in that movie. You know, there, there's no denying that. I mean, like, there, like I, I feel like most people up until a point, or at least for older people, I mean, uh, younger audiences, maybe it's a little different for them now. But, you know, I, I most t- like times I see people do like a horror list or something like that. Uh, Christie's death is almost always on there as like an opening for a film, because that is a, a pretty like shocking opening when you look at it. And and nope, you know, has like that similar thing with like it opens up with like the Gordy scene. Um, who, who did no wrong? We stand by that hashtag. Gordy did no <laughs> hashtag. Wrong. Um, and I really do like yeah. It's like one of those things. It's like if these movies very much they don't have to be a hundred percent labeled as horror if you really don't want to. <laughs> but there's no denying they have heavy horror elements and. I I mean I I don't see how you like I'm I'm with you in that like it's definitely a horror movie, uh in terms of like its structure and what's going on and especially when how tense the situation gets, but you know like I mean it doesn't have to be necessarily oh I'm afraid of I'm afraid of if something's gonna jump out at me type horror it can very much just be a this is a horrid situation we're in, 
and there's this creature that's like you know fucking everything up and uh yeah nope definitely has that ladder same you know as with jaws you know it's like just man versus nature this really extreme nature and nope but (laughs) uh it's fun you you alluded to one of the scenes that uh i would consider to be one of my favorite scary scenes of the year from nope as well which would be the gordy scene um that is such a fantastic example of peel's ability to tell these little microcosm sort of vacuum moments that have a greater significance to the entirety of the film, but it's not made clear for a good chunk of the movie why that is. Um, and, you know, it is a scene that is, you know, uh, objectively like very terrifying. The idea that, you know, you, it's a, also a very real world terror, right? That we've seen examples in the real world where, you know, people take advantage of their relationships with animals or view certain animals. Uh, that are from the wild and think, oh, we can domesticate them for our own amusement or this and that. And then that has the horrifying results um, that, you know, are very much like what happens with Gordy. Hashtag did nothing wrong. Um, (laughs) But it is the type of moment that, you know, on a sort of visceral level and with a lack of context when it's originally introduced, you can't watch that scene and it not, you know, take it at face value for how disturbing it is. The fact that this, this monkey is beating people to death. But just the fact that the film opens with that and you're like, what could this possibly have to do with UFOs? And the fact that Peel is able to then, you know, make it clear to the audience in a very short amount of time, the greater significance and why it makes sense to open the film with that scene. Um, and, you know, we talked about it on our uh, episode of Nope, which people should go back and listen to, because um, if I, you know, go down that rabbit hole, this is going to be a three hour <laughs> episode. But um, I'll finish by saying that my you know third scene from this film that stands out to me and is one of the best looking scenes i think i've seen this year there's a com- composition of a shot would be you know jean jacket uh regurgitating yep. the blood and items of all of his victims onto oj's house uh that is such a fantastic scene that you not only get to see the view from inside the house right of the blood dripping down the walls and you get to see the items falling and getting impaled into either the ground or the house itself But then you get that snapback shot from OJ's point of view from the van. And quite literally, you get to see with the, you know, the thunder illuminating or the lightning illuminating the ship. And it just, you know, rain pouring down. But then you get to see this blood rain dripping down the house and all of its, uh, you know, extraterrestrial glory, uh, which is an amazing scene. And I just love the way that that looks. And, you know, talk about a director that's able to fill a film with iconic moments as if this is like his sixth or ninth film and it's only his third film. Um, it's really, really something incredible. Yeah. Uh, that scene was uh, one of my main honorable mentions and that I've been struggling with if it should be my main one. Uh, <laughs> uh, but no, I am hundred percent with you. I, that When I first saw the movie, that was one of the scenes that really, I, I was like, okay, like, holy shit. This movie is amazing because it's just like how it's shot everything that's going on in the scene uh the you know i mean obviously some of it has to be cg but there's a lot of practical work going on too with like how it's going through this house and uh it and and then it really gives you that you know you're also realizing like this is the aftermath of these people being crushed and digested and all these things that are coming out and you know there's blood but you know there's like a tinge to it that you're like there's other stuff that's mixed in there it's not like just pure blood and 
yeah, it's it's an amazing scene. I I really it, it makes me it reminded me of like I remember back in the day Universal used to have like little haunted houses and stuff and then they have a really cool effect to like display off. I think they should just rebuild that house and just have the Gordy regurgitation happen on it for Halloween. <laughs> that would be fantastic. <laughs> that would be so sick. Right? I would love that. Right? Um but uh what about so uh honorable mentions? Any honorable mentions? Yeah. Um you know, I guess the, one of the scenes that stands out to me the most this year was in Smile, mm-hmm. which is when, uh, you know, the protagonist goes to that uh, party for her sister's son. And then, you know, it's such a wonderful build up to that moment because, you know, she delivers this gift. It's supposed to be a uh, train, I believe. And of course, it is not a train that's in the box. And I'll save that for the uh, for anybody that has not seen the film yet. But it's more about the buildup to that moment and the sort of perfectly deployed use of, you know, deteriorating this character's sort of foundation of how people view her. And your brain, for the most part, kind of like predicts what's going to happen about two seconds before it actually happens. Um, And that is the type of moment where it's like, sure, you might guess what's going to be in the box, but it's the buildup to it that makes that moment pop in a way that is... uh, Quite terrifying and more so fucked up, I think. Um, 100%. <laughs> more so than that really poorly deployed jump scare uh, with like the computer and stuff, which again is one of the lesser examples, I think, of a scare in that movie. But at the same time, for every, and not to say the film is inundated with them, but like for every jump scare in Smile that is kind of like lackluster, there's two or three other scenes in that that I found to be genuinely uh, terrifying. And again, an episode of the podcast that uh, Stuart joined me on along with uh, another third of uh, Nuclear Fridge, Jake Decker. So people should go back and check out that episode, which was a ton of fun to record. It was. But it was. Um, let's think. What else was a standout for me this year? Um, it's the type of thing where it's like when I try to think of individual scare. Oh, no, I know. Um, did you see Incantation on Netflix? No. You told me, I think, about it, too. And I didn't get to it. Yeah. Damn it. Yeah. That's... So that was a one that uh, was a found footage movie uh, without going too far into it. That movie has such a re- such a strong execution on specific moments um, that, you know, now that I've decided to mention it, it's difficult to talk about it without completely spoiling it. But that movie has an element to it that breaks the fourth wall that makes viewing that entire thing far scarier than I typically attribute to a lot of found footage films. Super vague, not helpful at all, but it's a film that stood with me, stuck with me um, just because of sort of the buildup of it all and the way that it breaks the fourth wall in a way that doesn't feel cheap in a way that a lot of movies, you know, try to be either meta or just kind of like bringing the audience into the uh, events of the film itself. But that movie has a really great sort of turn to it um, that I appreciated and it made it terrifying in a way again that uh, I think few found footage films have done for me uh, also helps when you uh, watch that movie on edibles because that'll freak out a little bit more <laughs> so for anybody that chooses to uh, consume media that's definitely one that I think will uh, get a little more mileage out of that but Stuart yes. what was your scariest scene of the year uh, well it's a close one um, <laughs> I was going to say, did you just change what it was? Uh, I didn't. Um, so one, which I can't go into full detail because I don't know if you've seen it or not. Well, I guess I'll, I'll say it. 
Um, one of them, the, the main ones, which I think I'll just I will pick just because it's one that has stood out to me since I saw it. Um, there's a movie that came out this year that unfortunately I don't think got a lot of traction. It's called You Are Not My Mother. What was um, this one about? I'm not familiar with. So this. essentially, it's about a uh, it, it's about a young girl who's. Uh, there's like something kind of going on with her family. Like the family's kind of outcasted by their neighborhood. You're not really sure why at first. And essentially her mom starts, she's her mom at the beginning is very clearly depressed and like not, you know, enjoy. She's clearly really in a bad place in life and she disappears and comes back and she's acting very, very weird. And, it's basically one of the it's it's sort of one of those movies of is this person having a mental breakdown or is there something more here i don't want to go too far into it because i i think if you haven't seen it you'd get a kick out of it um it was one of the oh, it list. was definitely one of the more solid movies this year that like just kind of came out of nowhere uh but there's a scene and i'm just gonna call it the burning scene because if you see <laughs> the movie you'll know what i'm talking about uh, just some certain actually also speaking of like it, it's a very claustrophobic scene and uh, the main protagonist of the film who's this little girl is in such a, a vulnerable position uh, between both like she's kind of you know bullied and she also has the stuff going on with her mother and it all kind of comes to this head um <sighs> I mean, yeah, I, I'm trying not to spoil because it's it's for me it was the thing that stood out to me is it's a very quiet scene that it comes to between two characters and for some reason it just I was like man that's fucked up and it <laughs> gets really claustrophobic really quick um, that was a big standout for me this year uh, another which was all, also almost up there I mean nope the digestion scene was up there uh, um, and smile same with the birthday scene I, I think any scene where they're willing to really go there and show somebody having like, like they're not sure if they're having a mental breakdown, if there's something else going at, I think that that in itself, just with the reality of, you know, people being actually, you know, having mental breakdowns and, you know, seeing things and hearing things that aren't there. I think that that concept alone is terrifying. So when you see, you know, her care, so see Bacon's character, you know, losing her mind you, 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 what's in the box you know all of that and what happens at that party I, I don't think a lot of horror movies sometimes are willing to go into the awkward places of if this event happens how's everyone at this thing going to react usually they'll do like a quick cut and they cut to the aftermath of them like away from the scene where in this it plays out fully um, and it's very like like hard to watch but also really sad um but the other one for me was uh, from the cursed again, which I won't go too detailed with it. But um, there's a scarecrow in the movie. Uh, the context of which why this scarecrow is put up and its visual appearance um, is very disturbing, but contextually also just i don't want to go too uh, yeah i'm trying not to spoil it i'm sorry i'm like trying to go around it but no the initial scene of of the scarecrow and how it's there and its visuals it just there's a lot of layers to it that it's disturbing 
and tragic. Like, it, there's a lot going on with it. I, I won't say any more to it, but it it stood out to me this year as being one of the things where it like lingered for me. Um, so recommend seeing that. Uh, but yeah, those were like the big ones that kind of like jumped out uh, for me. The cursed is going to the top of my uh, my holiday viewing list because. That's one that you've now mentioned twice and I'm <laughs> kicking myself for not getting to it. But yeah, you know, um, in terms of smile with that scene, I think you're right in that, you know, again, most people probably have an idea of where that reveal is going, but it's more about capturing the reactions of people in that room. And it kind of like puts you into that mood, that scene in a way that horror films seldomly do, where so much, so much of the time it's more just like, oh, Let's have a reaction and then immediately cut to something else. But like lingering in that moment and just feeling the uncomfortable nature of what has just transpired, you know, it really does let that play in a way that uh, is fucked up. It, it, it is. <laughs> There's no other way to really it put is. it. Um, <laughs> and they managed to keep it going in the horror as well as being sad with like, I mean, she sees the one person with the smile so that you see like that, that, you know, presence is there. But it's also, you know, you're just... <laughs> seeing these people react to something that is fucked up but um and uh i I will i I do do think it's fair to give a shout to the big scene that was in the trailers because you know you 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 see certain scenes enough sometimes they just lose their muster uh the movie did have the unfortunate thing we see it coming but i still think it's effective um and actually there's going to be a category coming up as to why i still think it's effective um but I, I just like giving it a shout out because that beca- became almost a meme this year and so it was so popular <laughs> yeah. and why a lot of people wanted to see it um, but I still think it gets a sh- it should get a shout just because it still works absolutely yeah that was uh, a scene that I think we talked about when we covered Smile for the podcast where it was like oh this is such a strong shot is this going to be kind of like the ceiling of what this movie's capable of and then when you actually get to it and sit down and watch it you're like oh not only is that a strong scene but the film goes out of its way to like build on that sort of like the ramifications for that moment with this character and their you know immediate family and friends group and yeah that was uh it was refreshing not to see them kind of like blow their spooky load <laughs> if you will in the trailer uh and still have some stuff in store for the audience 100 percent. and if we had the category that movie 100 percent would get best marketing <laughs> best yeah. horror marketing for, for dude, sure <laughs> talk about that uh the baseball games where they had those people sitting in the the behind the uh, so so box. good that was so well done and one of those things where it was like i had people that weren't into horror that i'm friends with like sending me screenshots of it and they're like what is this about and it was just like oh uh, this is so fantastic it, our world's colliding it, it really is uh, it, like that made me so happy because a lot of movies don't do that anymore so when like they're willing to put in the effort for it, and I mean we even said it on the podcast, like that movie, all it needed was its teaser, uh, and I was interested. You know, you don't need a lot. I mean, you know, sometimes all it takes is just a an eerie image to get you interested in something. Uh, so, but no, yeah, th- that movie, uh, I know it has its detractors, but uh, it definitely was a was a, a surprise for me this year. Going from best scares. Let's dive into best ensembles. There were so many films this year that I found had a great collective of characters and, you know, whether it be comprised of character actors or, you know, actors going out of their comfort zone to be in genre films. 
Uh, there's almost too many to pick, but for you, man, what was your favorite example of an ensemble cast uh, in a horror film? So, <laughs> damn it. Um, I, I think for me, my, my number one would be Nope. Yep. Uh, it, <laughs> Another one that we see out of. Yeah, like it, everyone has their place. There's no throwaway characters. Um, it's really, I mean, I don't want to go too far into it because we, 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 have praised it so much when we spoke about it on yeah. the podcast, but Daniel Kaluuya, Kiki Palmer, Stephen Yoon, you know, Michael Wincott and everybody like everyone delivers Keith David like needed more, but you know what we get is always amazing. Uh, I, I really loved the, the ensemble in that movie. Um, and there, and there were some, uh, some other great ensembles this year, which I'll, I'll give brief mentions to in a second, but uh, yeah, Nope. Just it, it what a movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say, you know, we did talk about it at length, but again, I want to reiterate, uh, Stephen Yoon as Jude so good. is fantastic and not in a great deal of the movie, right? He's in, you know, he's introduced early on and he has definitely more than uh, than uh, Keith David in terms of like appearances <laughs> and dialogue. Definitely. But at the same time, like Stephen Yoon does such a great job of handling a character that is arguably the most tragic character of the entire movie. And the way in which that he grapples with that trauma of what he endured when, you know, watching Gordy kill the uh, the cast, his castmates, like the way that he relives that moment through an SNL skit, like that's such a brilliant kind of view into that character and how they process things and how they kind of like have learned to live with what is arguably the most traumatic moments of their life. Um, and it was just, again, a very interesting facet to a film that on paper is just about a UFO, and yet there is this you know stronger human element to it. Um, and again, he's not in much of the movie past you know up until he gets sucked up into the uh, jean jacket. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, I think he leaves a you know indistinguishable mark on that film um, in a way that is uh, yeah remarkable. In terms of honorable mentions, though, what was uh, one or two for you? Um, so one, which is a movie, uh, I, I did. You, did you get to see? You won't be alone. I did not, unfortunately. Again, yeah. <laughs> yet another film that uh, escaped me this yeah. year. Um, so it's a phenomenal movie. Um, I'm going to try to speak around this because it almost. So there's a group of actors in this that really need to be in coordination. I don't want to go much further into it than that. Um, but uh, to do what they did and pull it off and make it all feel very authentic at the end, I was very impressed by. I know this is just super vague and I could be describing almost any, <laughs> any a lot of movies. That's okay. Um, I, was, I was very vague earlier with uh, Incantation. But uh, the performances are great. And uh, it, it remains consistent throughout with these actors. I'm not going to say why, um, but yeah, d definitely check it out. Um, and uh, I don't want to butcher their names or go into it because there's a lot of them. <laughs> but um, just definitely recommend You Won't Be Alone. Um, for people who are fans of like the girl with the dragon tattoo, like the original series and stuff like that, Numi Rapace is in it. Um, oh, yeah, and she's yeah. uh, great. I mean, but yeah, there's a lot of great actors in it. Definitely see it. And my other one is um, one which I, I don't think we got to, to talk about. Did you see The Innocence? I did not, unfortunately. Shit. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll be vague again. Um, so 
there's also going to... I've heard that it's basically like kind of like X-Men in the fact that it's like children that have these mutant powers. Ve- very much so. So it's um, in, in the powers of... So yeah, it's basically about these children um, who have... They, they discover that they have powers... Uh, it's there's much more to it than that. Like from a like on the outside, it's like oh, so it's like a chronicle with with young kids. Um, but no, it's uh, it it very much fits into horror. Um, as the movie continues, especially with one character. Um, and I think one of the, the strengths of the movie, and we'll bring up another one in a second, is that the kids feel real and authentic in it. They don't feel like movie kids. They feel like kids. And uh, it also, you know, it doesn't shy away from, I mean, it's like, you know, the irony with the title is that, you know, kids aren't always so innocent and can be very cruel. And, you know, when you, if a kid, you know, with that child mindset, that's like, you know, curious about the world and maybe even perhaps dark things gets powers, what could they potentially do with them? And uh, I think the movie does a really good job of, of balancing that and, there's there's definitely levity in there with characters and it's not just like all grim and dark but there's a couple scenes especially if you're a cat lover there is a scene that was really difficult to watch um but the movie in itself though is very well done and and the kids in it as an like as like as a little you know troop of young actors do a great job um and it brings in just briefly just a shout out to uh um I, I, I don't have their names down right now. I think one of them's uh, like uh, the, the two. Ki- the, who did the like the two? I mean, all of the kids were good, but the two main kids from Black Phone, I think, deserve a shout out. Oh yeah, that's as, a great as, shout. as with you know Ethan Hawke, who might actually be coming up in another category. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think this year had some. Yeah, between the Innocence and the Black Phone, there have been some great kid actors in there, and uh, it's been it's been nice to see. Yeah, you know, that's one of, been one of the things where people are like, oh, kid actors are always terrible in horror films. And I feel like the last five years, there's been a huge uptick in terms of like the quality of performances that you can see from child actors. Um, you know, it doesn't matter if it's their first film or they've been doing a few, you know, around the genre, but it seems that there's definitely been um, a growing class of, you know, young actors that have really been able to hold their own uh, in a way that has kind of, Silence the naysayers, if you will. Um, but for me, you know, two of my honorable mentions for best ensemble would be Speak No Evil, which was on Shudder. Um, did you see that one? We did. We did. I, I, I will say the standout thing in that movie, the acting is incredible. Yeah, that entire ensemble I found really played well off of one another in a way that felt very natural, that allowed me to look past perhaps uh, one or two moments where I would have, you know, pulled that ejector cord and been like, fuck this. This is too weird. I'm getting out of this <laughs> fucked up situation. Yes. But their performances as a whole, I found, really did uh, did keep me invested in that in a way that uh, some other films that have tried something similar, I would have just bounced off of. Um, and I'll say the last one for me would be Hellbender, which is... Oh, that's uh, a, good, that's a, a very like, good choice. Hell yeah. Yeah, yeah like a coming-of-age witchcraft tale um, that's about a young girl and her mother... And, you know, the kind of uh, going through the trials and tribulations of growing up with witchcraft powers and whatnot. But, yeah, I would say that uh, the mother-daughter relationship in that is incredibly strong, which, you know, obviously is important when you have a film that deals with something such as that. 
Um, but again, you know, that core duo, but then the supporting characters as well, um, amongst other elements that make that a standout film. Uh, yeah, Hellbender's one that I couldn't necessarily fit into some of these categories, but it's 100% uh, a film that I think everybody should check out. And it's uh, another Shudder original that um, goes above and beyond, I think, in a, a subgenre that is quite tired, I'll say. You know, that kind of coming-of-age witchcraft tale. Mm-hmm. Is she going to use her powers for good or evil type of thing, which is very kind of boilerplate at this point. But it capitalizes on that with its performances and um, some style, I'll say, and a really great soundtrack as well. I think it was also my uh, honorable mention for soundtrack. Um, it just does a great job of, you know, going against the grain in some regards for that, uh, again, yeah. kind of boilerplate uh, subgenre. But, you know, we got to move on. We got plenty of more yes. categories and uh, <laughs> honorable mentions to dive into. But, um, yeah, you know, I mentioned it a second ago. Let's just let's get uh, soundtrack or sound design out of the way. For you, what was uh, a standout oh, soundtrack or example of uh, sound design? Oh, shit. Okay, I'd had score and, and sound design in two different categories. Oh. Um, <laughs> uh, you can I mention, can mention, them, bo- mention can them both. Okay, so yeah, for yeah. sound design, uh, nope. Uh, very strong sound design. Nice. That would jump to my top. Um, also, though, for my quick two shout-outs for sound design, uh, there was a movie this year I was a really big fan of. It's called Midnight. Um, which I believe you've seen as well, that involves a girl, the main protagonist is deaf. Um, and the way they play with sound in that movie is fantastic. It's really good. Um, and I encourage everyone to see that. And also I give sound design to Smile uh, because Smile, uh, some of the, the best scenes in it work because of the sound design. Um, and not necessarily because, oh, it's a loud noise. Like it's actually like, there's a really good sound design in it. Uh, score though, uh, my my top one uh, is not necessarily my favorite score just by what the score is, but in the context, which is Deadstream's score. Oh, nice. Because it's hilarious that this streamer <laughs> just decided to make himself music to go along with him invading this haunted <laughs> house. Right. Uh, so contextually, I thought that was so clever. And it's like very fun throwback, like, you know, 70s horror like sounds. But... Uh, I really enjoyed it for that, and for that I wanted to kind of almost just give it my top spot for score because of it, like incorporating it into the movie in a clever way, being found footage. Um, uh, the other ones that were like like uh, a wounded fawn, um, a big fan of it was by Val, I think you pronounce it. Um, and then Mad God Dan Wool's sound score for that, uh, Smiles Cristobal Tapia De Vere's score. Uh, and I know now I'm just like I, I'm like trying not to go too far into them uh, and then Barbarian <laughs> had a really good score this year which was I think Anna Drew bit Birch bit Birch I don't I want to don't want to pronounce it wrong um, should, I've but... <laughs> I've been guilty of that more times than I can count so you're good <laughs> Drew I don't know but either way um, those were all fantastic scores I just kind of give it to Deadstream just because it, it I couldn't stop laughing when I realized, and especially once it starts ramping up with what's going on and he's still using the score, uh, fantastic. And that movie's going to come up again. <laughs> I got to say, man, Dead, well, I'll save it because if you're going to bring it up again, I'll get to uh, I'll get to gush about Deadstream in a little bit. But yeah, you know, um, I would say mid. if I had not, you know, conflated those two categories into one, Midnight would certainly uh, get a shout because like you said, the way in which they're able to 
play around with sound design to convey the perspective of a deaf protagonist in a way that feels like it is incorporated in a way that is both smartly deployed and at the same time, you know, being, res I guess, respectful of the fact that you're trying to, you know, capture what it might be like to be a deaf person, um, right? The way that they're able to do that in a way that feels convincing without being, um, I suppose, I suppose, egregiously uh, exploiting the fact, um, even though the killer does uh, do that at certain mm -hmm. points. Um, yeah, just a really smart use of that. But for me, it would be, you know, the shout out to Mad God. Uh, Dan Wool's soundtrack, I thought, did a fantastic job of carrying the weight of a film that, you know, tells a story without having, you know, dialogue uh, outside of the opening kind of like scroll text that, you know, fills in sort of, not necessarily like giving you a whole lot of context, but at least it kind of captures the tone and the vibe of what the world of Mad God is like. Um, and Dan Wool's soundtrack, I found, did or score, did a really great job of kind of capturing the feel of this dark fantasy world, while at the same time not being too grandiose or overbearing, if that makes sense. Sometimes with like fantasy scores, they have a tendency to be so orchestral or angelic in a way that it almost becomes kind of like distracting um, in a way. And I found with something like this that is so horror centric, but still has this fantasy element akin to um, something along the lines of like Dark Crystal mm -hmm. or Labyrinth almost. Um, I thought that that score did a really great job of kind of capturing the emotional weight of what we're here, what we're seeing and, you know, the progression of the protagonist through this, you know, increasingly depraved world um it did a really great job i think of just keeping you furthermore you know invested in this world um without distracting necessarily yeah no i i i thought it was great it really did uh, yeah it was never overbearing or like it, it was it it fit every scene it it, it just con mm. contributed to what every every visual you were seeing it never was distracting um and that's you know what a great score does yeah but uh, let's see. Moving on from best score, let's uh, let's talk about best kill. Uh, again, this was a year that was inundated with uh, many, many, many horrific acts of bodily harm, uh, and you know more often than not, they had some stellar practical work backing them up. Uh, but for you, man, what was your favorite kill of the year? As psychotic of a question I know. as that sounds. It's, this is one of those ones, too. Like, I almost didn't want to get, pick the one I'm going to be saying for my main one because there's there's always that like group that they'll hear that and be like, how the fuck could you pick something so fucking violent? <laughs> right. Um, but the one for me, because I, I just kept being shocked at how far it was going, was the bedroom scene in Terrifier 2. Yep. I... <laughs> It, it just it, like there's a lot of other kills in that movie that are extreme and are really well done um that scene went so long and and not in a way necessary like it like was it a like yes it's over the top and, and egregious and shit but it the fact that they were going there and it becomes hilariously like like it becomes funny because the going for so long um like what's happening is not funny but it's just like holy shit <laughs> they are really going there and it the practical work like the movie is over the top and but i do really think credit needs to be given like the practical work on on the violence inflicted on this poor woman is is really well done 
Um, and I just, it, it caught me off guard. <laughs> so, like, I couldn't believe what I was watching. Uh, and, and then the, yeah, that's definitely, it has to be my pick because I just couldn't believe what I was watching. <laughs> well, that's kind of like the one, and you know, for the record, Terrifier 2 was also my pick, uh, for best, I guess mine would be best kills, right? Because, yes. you know, an absolute madman approach to violence, um, in a way where that film ramps up until its closing moments. And it really is, for a film that prides itself on being as gratuitous and grotesque as possible, the fact that you think you know, like you've seen the limit, and the fact that they just continually push that barometer for brutality um, is something that, you know, you can't not applaud to a certain degree. And I would agree with you in the sense that, you know, they take that moment, specifically that scene you mentioned, and they just, keep beating not only that poor woman to death, but that scene to death in terms of how long it goes on for to the point where it becomes like a Tom and Jerry sketch. Like I referenced yeah. earlier in the episode, right? It's the idea where it's like, Oh, what's the worst thing that can happen after being scalped and slashed and stabbed? Going to quite literally, you know, rub salt in the wound. Yeah. And it's not just some salt, but like a handful that he basically like five stars into her wounds and the which just kind of shows how net fucking vile and nasty that character is but like you said it's so overbearing and it's so unrelenting that it becomes comical that the fact that this scene can keep going on and on and on and on and on yeah i mean it, it is and i it's one of those scenes too like i like i would never recommend other maybe to you there's very few people like i see you need to watch terrifier too without them like watching it and then thinking I'm a psychopath. Um, we both, I think we both shared that <laughs> where we both watched it and then we were immediately like, man, that was really great, but I, I don't think I could recommend I, this to anybody other than Stuart. I, I genuinely can't. Like, th like this is, I guess, my coming out party of, of ter liking Terrifier 2 because, yeah, it, it really is. Like, it's, it's violent. It's grotesque. I mean, the, the, luckily with 2 compared to 1, like I look at Terrifier 1 as almost like a, proof of concept as well as showing art's potential as a horror villain and two like while it is extremely violent uh there is some levity to it and some of which we'll be talking about a little bit more um with characters added and uh you know like you said going a little bit more into the supernatural elements of the character but yeah, no, the, the kills in this movie are insane. And, like, even that one, like, there's other kills that are probably almost equally as violent. It's just that one, the length of time and the amount of practical work that must have gone into that is insane. Like, because, like, we didn't even describe it all. Like, there's, like, a scene of him breaking an arm back and forth that looks really good. Uh, it's, yeah, and then the ending of it, which is sad like don't get me wrong it is sad but because you just watched this like over the top kill and ultimately this character's mother comes in the room to witness what just like the aftermath you're just like jesus christ like what <laughs> this, is, this is just like be like the most like horrifying thing you could probably ever see as a parent um yeah. and then like there's still like you know it's still kind of got that like tongue-in-cheekness to it where like David Howard Thornton's like you know he's like going like oops you know like <laughs> well the expressiveness of a uh, a killer that never speaks yes right? I think that that's a big part of why we consider art to be iconic right is that you know he can be super expressive while still never uttering a word uh, which you know is a quality of a majority of slasher icons 
Um, I think also like a follow-up scene that kind of goes the distance in that regard, just like this one is when, you know, he's at the nightclub and he's beating this girl to death with a bat and it just keeps going and going and going. And, you know, clearly, you know, has killed her. And yet that's not good enough for old Arthur the clown, right? What does he have to do? (laughs) He has to literally, you know, rip open her chest and rip her heart out. Uh, and I forget if he eats it I think it or he not. does but, um, take a take a bite okay. out of it. <laughs> okay. See, this is the thing with this movie, right? Is that if I misremember, it's not so. It's such a wild movie that that's not that crazy of an assumption to make about how a scene would no, end. No, I've I've um, done that already too. Where I was like, like I'm like, yeah. I remember a scene, and I'm like, but did it go there? And I'm like, right. maybe it did, maybe it didn't. I can't quite remember. But no, he, you know, no, yeah, yeah, he like. And once again, that practical work on the body they have for that scene. Like they show like they like show it almost like a obviously like not as, you know, it's it's more over the top, but it's like uh, almost like passion to the Christ levels of like lashings on this girl's back that he keeps hitting. And you're just like, Jesus. And then, yeah, he, he like goes in and eats her like not I don't know, eats it, but he takes a bite out of her heart and you're like, OK, we're 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 there. We're there, man. Well, it's even it's even like with the final fight with him and the final girl. Right. And that she gets slashed in the back about a thousand times before you know the next part of their fight sequence which you know see is seems excessive is excessive but if it wasn't excessive uh it it, it would get called out for the fact that it was like oh well you know art would have done that so many more times or whatever this or that which is kind of just his signature brand of brutality is that it's comically over the top to the degree that you know, the first few minutes are tough to watch, but then you end up laughing at it because it just goes on and on and on like the <laughs> ultimate commitment to that bit. Yeah. It, it, yeah. And, and the, yeah, I mean, we didn't, we don't have a category for it too, but that also, that, that is a great final fight. Um, just because both of them take quite a lashing. Like it's, if we had a, you know, best final girl of the year, it would probably be given to, um, Lauren Levera. to, yeah. yeah. Cause she is a, a terrific addition. And, it's the type of thing where, you know, you would, if somebody dived into Terrifier 2, which to be fair, there's going to be a good amount of people, I think, that watch that movie that have no idea about the original just because, uh, you know, obviously it's a sequel. They know there's an original, but mm-hmm. because of the notoriety around the film, I'm sure there's a good deal of people that are renting it just to see what the fuss is about. Oh, yeah. um, but like you would assume that she was a strong emphasis for the original film. And yet that's obviously not the no. case. Um, and I think that if anything, you know, to come into a series where there's been a short and a full feature film establishing this universe and she's not a part of it and comes out of the gates, you know, quite literally swinging. Um, I think that it's definitely a strong showing and one that, uh, you know, while I don't need another Terrifier film, ne- ne- let's say next year or maybe even the year after that, I definitely want to return to this universe. And they obviously are. Um, but like seeing that character continue, I think would be the main drive for me next to, you know, seeing what other kind of wild shit art that the clown can get up no, to. Abs- no, hell, no, I a hundred percent agree. I mean, it's re- like, like kind of along with art himself. Like it's refreshing to have a badass final girl again, you know, like, cause I mean, you get a lot of final girls like lately with a lot of horror movies, which is not a, you know, there's been a lot of great ones, but a lot of them are like I mean some of them are are very tough other ones it's just like they lucked out getting out of a situation um so it was kind of nice to have that over the top just badassery type you know like over the top like final girl again like it was nice to have that like because like she 
I mean, she does have a bit of, she has an arc, like, like where she is, you know, timid and stuff at first, obviously. Like, I mean, who the fuck wouldn't with these, like, brutal fucking deaths of people around her? Um, and there's other more context to that, too, as to why she's, like, frightened of him. But, uh, she, she, yeah, she goes out fucking swinging like a champ. Holy shit. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, but uh, two of my honorable mentions would be, again, Texas Chainsaw Massacre with that bus kill. Uh, (laughs) That is not only highly comedic, but a great example of some of the practical gore in that movie where, you know, you quite literally get to see Leatherface doing his thing and just kind of like sawing through these influencers and uh, taking great pleasure in it as uh, only he could. Um, But I think also, you know, that final shot from Hellraiser, which is basically the creation oh, of a new Cenobite. Brutal. Is, um, you know, I think when I had my buddy Pat on to chat about that movie, we described it as being, um, you know, a mix of angelic and, you know, hellish body horror, which is the best way to describe or best compliment, rather, you could give to a Hellraiser movie or scene, right? This idea that they portray it as almost like this religious act. But then, of course, you are having the, your flesh quite literally freed uh, from the best, the rest of your body, um, which is, uh, yeah, very uh, disturbing and uncomfortable to watch happen. Uh, but if anything, you know, it captures the essence of Hellraiser in that, you know, you have these horrific things happening to people's bodies, but there's a certain, I guess, you know, enlightenment that they are uh, undergoing, I suppose, in becoming a Cenobite. Um, which kind of, you know, furthermore makes that universe so uncomfortable to watch because it is this very uncomfortable balance um, between, you know, again, angelic and uh, body horror. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. What what was your other one? Um, So it was that uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, right. Let's see. There are probably a few more that are. Wait, so wait, was was, was the Terrifier bedroom scene your number one? Oh, yeah, shit. Okay. All right. Well. All right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No. Was... People are going to think that we like shared our lists, but no, no. Yeah. That was mine as well. Oh, um, nice. was the Terrifier 2 bedroom yeah. scene. Um, I guess, you know, I guess uh, honorable mention also would be, you know, Art. I think it's his first kill in Terrifier 2 where he kills the um, the mortician oh. and then rips the guy's <laughs> eye or first he rips the guy's eye out, puts his eye in for his own that's missing and then beats the guy's head into a billion bloody giblets uh, with a hammer. Yeah, no, that is a good one. Um, I guess for me, I'll, I'll do can I do a couple of just quick ones. Oh, yeah, uh, please. Number one, uh, the first kill in Barbarian. Uh, just because you don't know what the hell is in this basement. And when it happens, it's so quick and brutal. It's like, oh, shit. What the the hell was that? Uh, I'd have to give that a shout out. The other one, which I've talked with you about, um, which is not the best kill necessarily in the movie. Um, I was a really big fan of this movie, though, but I could not stop laughing because it just kept going. And I think I know you know what I'm going to say is the end credits to a wounded fawn. Um, I I, I guess I don't want to go too far. I mean, I don't want to spoil it necessarily, but... Uh, I mean, but there's a character essentially that like comes to a head, um, meeting their demise and it just, it's, it goes over the entire credits of the movie and (laughs) it is so funny. Um, and, and it's like, you know, there's like that bit to it cause there's another character involved and it's like kind of like one of those like fuck yeah moments. Uh, but 
the length of time it goes on uh, in a similar but completely different sense at the same time as Terrifier 2 where it like just kept going uh, it, I appreciated that um, and then another one which is a shout out to a movie I, I know you haven't seen yet but and, I, and I'll be vague with it but I am a sucker for the use of dummies in movies in general uh, and in the movie Sissy there is a, a, a dummy that is launched off a cliff and it is it is it is wonderful. <laughs> it is so. It just brought me back to old school like horror movies where they just had these dummies that they would just chuck off shit, and uh, I appreciated that. Uh, and uh, another uh, just quick one for something that was more recent. Uh, I'll say the chimney scene in Violent Night was a fun one. Oh man, yeah. That's a great shout. That movie has so many stellar, you know, we talked about it before we were recording. That's a movie that, you know, people might see the trailer for it and be like, oh, yeah, you know, that's like mainstream blending of holiday and horror. And it's like, oh, there's a couple of cool kills maybe. But that movie goes the distance in terms of having shocking kills in a film that maybe you can't quite uh, show off in a trailer, of course. But that's a movie that I think capitalizes on uh, brutality in a way that only that director could. For those that don't know, uh, Violent Night is from the guy that was behind uh, Dead Snow, the Nazi zombies movie, um, but also um, The Trip, which is on Netflix, which I recommended to you to check out. We'll compare notes on sometime, hopefully. Yeah. But no, I will yeah. watch it. A, a fantastic blending of uh, holiday humor and uh, horrifying violence. But yeah, best Best Christmas movie I've seen this year. <laughs> for sure yeah <laughs> there were two uh, you know two released uh this season which was that and another that's on shutter but this was definitely uh the standout i think for both of us yes and it was it was refreshing similar to i mean you know i mean it was nice seeing that there was like this big screen it kind of reminded me i mean not nearly to the extreme and the context is completely different but uh surprised that universal released released the movie after watching it like being such a wide release because it, it it is it does get brutal especially with some of the practical effects so i was i was really yeah i was i was impressed definitely um but yeah so let's jump into our next category which i am going to for my pick i'm going to conflate favorite director and favorite original horror film uh because they go hand in hand um, and so for me, it would be favorite original horror film is going to be Resurrection, ah, which is okay. directed by Andrew Simmons, who is my favorite director of the year. Um, Resurrection is a film that I heard a lot about just in terms of like the reception when it was in the critic circle and festival circuit and whatnot. Did not know anything about it and was completely blown away by this film. Uh, have you seen this one? You and I haven't chatted about this previously. Um, I, I did I did see it yes well I was interested I mean first off I mean I think we talked about I was a big fan of uh, uh, the Night House different director but I'm always down for Rebecca Hall in the lead of like a horror movie absolutely I mean in what two films she has really solidified herself as being somebody that is able to bring a certain caliber of performance that is not always found in genre films yes uh, that's not to put down genre films but at the same time like and I've mentioned it previously on the podcast when I talked with someone about the night house, I was ignorant to a wide uh, chunk of her filmography. 
I had only previously seen her in the town, which she kind of just plays this like love interest, which is fairly generic. Right. And when I saw her in the night house, like completely blown away. And the fact that within the span of, I think it was what, two years, she came back and did resurrection and furthermore, just kind of showed her ability to be dropped into these genre films that, again, I have these not only strong female led characters, but more importantly, you know, there's a facet to her performances that feels like an oddity or a rarity rather um, in a lot of these types of movies. But for people that don't know, like there's a quality to this movie that I am so taken with in that, you know, without getting into the nitty gritty of it, it is about a woman that has, you know, survived an emotionally and in some cases physically abusive relationship. And then this sort of figure comes back into her life. But it's more about the portrayal, I think, of the emotionally abusive relationship that is, you know, so terrifying. Like the way that they talk about it, it it almost takes on like a supernatural quality kind mm-hmm. of, you know, the way that they talk about the dynamics between her and her abuser. And, you know, there's not a great deal of violence or even scares in the movie. But what is really terrifying is just the dialogue between her and her abuser and the way that, you know, at face value, the conversations that they have are ridiculous. But when you realize like the significance of a conversation to her and her abuser, like it really is the stuff of nightmares I found. Um, And, you know, again, being kind of vague, but like talking about this reward system that she has with her abuser and how like every time she does something, she has to like give him something or she has to kind of like limit what she enjoys about life. Otherwise, he'll be upset in these things. And there is like a dreamlike kind of quality to the perception of, you know, her life and whatnot that is like really, really disturbing. Um, and I found that, you know, for a film that has a uh, a, <laughs> a really, really messed up ending uh, that goes a little more into sort of like the big, gory, fantastical uh, realm of endings to horror films, mm-hmm. 90% of the film is not indicative of that. It's more no, just about, no. you know, how this woman is reacting to having this threat reappear in her life um, and the ramifications that has for her, her work life, her, you know, her daughter and whatnot. And um, yeah, you know, Rebecca Hall is front and center for that. And she carries that role and, you know, has that, uh, quality to her that again she's able to really take a premise of somebody that is dealing with some kind of trauma whether it be physical or emotional and you know without having to be told the entire history of what led up to that you can kind of just read that from her behavior in a way that is like this spiraling sort of um, person in their multiple facets of their life um, and you know she is just does such a great job I think of showing multiple facets to that. Um, also, you know, it helps Andrew Simmons not only directed, but wrote the film. And so he does a great job of kind of inserting in key moments these not only um, dream sequences, but more importantly, like moments that carry a greater significance to kind of like past traumas that we don't ever get to see, but we don't have to because the performance is indicative. What's being said is indicative of it. Um, which makes for a pretty powerful film, I found. Yeah, no, I, de- I definitely really enjoyed it. She uh, she was amazing in it. So is Tim Roth. Tim Roth always kills it. Um, and uh, no, that's a that's a, a great pick. 
Yeah, that was a long-winded way of uh, getting getting to the root of it. No, that. no, no. But yeah. I think that, but I think that you know, again, like I come back to the dialogue and the way that they, and you know, spoiler. Tim Roth was one of my honorable mentions for best male performance, um, just because he does such a great job of being this this smarmy piece of shit <laughs> that just has like a smile on his face the entire time, doesn't raise his voice more than once, if that. And uh, yeah, you know, he it. it is a great example of, you know, uh, a protagonist that plays off of the antagonist, but because of how the protagonist is spiraling, everybody in the film views her as being almost an antagonist um, in a way that, again, when you learn more about their relationship and situations that transpired before the film, it just, it makes that performance that much more heartbreaking while also, you know, kind of terrifying. Um, and yeah, that was, yeah, Andrew Simmons did a terrific job uh, as a director. And, you know, this was my favorite original horror film of the year that uh, I think you could even recommend this to people that are not necessarily the biggest of horror fans, right? I think that, again, mm-hmm. outside of one dream sequence and the ending of the film, which has a tremendous payoff, I'll say, and I'll leave it at that. Um, this is a movie that I think is very accessible to people that maybe are more in the realm of thrillers or dramas and whatnot. But at the same time, you know, there is this uh, psychological element to it that is profoundly disturbing, I think, in more ways than one. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I agree. No, it was, it was a great movie. It, it definitely um, hit my honorable mentions for a few categories here. Um, but yeah, no, I, uh, so originally for me, I had a different, <laughs> different favorite for original film and director. Um, but you know, if we want to, I'll co- to combine the two. Uh man. <laughs> well, you don't have to combine the two. I was just, I'm just being difficult. No, I you're guess, not being <laughs> difficult at all. No, because I, because like, yeah. you know, they do kind of go hand in hand with like, you know, giving you this original horror during the year. And this was another category I had a hard time because there were a few <laughs> that really stuck out to me. Um, the craftsmanship and stuff that went into it in the final product, I'd, I'll say uh, Goran Stalewski, who did You Won't Be Alone. Once again, I don't want to go too far into it because I do want you to see it and not have anything ruined. But uh, it's such... it's it's You know, it, there's the horror elements there, but it's very much a character... A, a character piece film um and it's unique in its structure and how that plays out and i just really liked the fact that it was probably one of the more quiet movies i've seen this year but also had some really good emotional payoff to it um and that's not to say i mean there was there was some there was so much great year for horror <laughs> Um, I mean, I mean, because obviously, dude, we were we were eating this. We year. were like, this year is just absolutely packed to the gills. It, with it was, and I mean, like, even like I look at the honorable mentions, I'm like, I could even put any of them honestly in my spot too, because I mean, like, well, obviously, I put Jordan Peele because he's just solidified himself as an amazing director. Um, Ty West too, after what he did, I mean, it's not a small feat to put out. I mean, it's it's you know just one really good movie for the year. Um, so to do two as well as have them connected was, you know, awesome. And then the other one, which was a shout out, was Travis Stevens, who did a Wounded Fawn. Because one of the things with that movie that I just appreciate so much is it it, it feels like an older horror movie. 
aesthetically, it really does. The, the how it's written, um, like it it actually made me feel like you know it gave me almost like nostalgia for movies that like when I was started watching horror, that were like some of the older ones with like these over the top shenanigans, but weren't afraid to get really friggin' weird at the same time. <laughs> um, and he did a great job. One thing about Wounded Fawn that I just learned after I watched it, uh, I don't know, I forget when I texted you, like last week about it or something, mm-hmm. is that the main, I'll just leave it as the main guy in that movie is Josh Rubin, who is the writer and director of Scare Me and Werewolves Within. Oh, no shit. Yeah, I didn't realize that because I was like, this guy is really good at uh, playing the role that he does. Like, how do I not know who this is? And then I looked into it and I was like, oh, shit, this is like a pretty notable director uh, that's coming up in the you know horror space. Yeah, it, it was really I, I really enjoyed it a lot, especially because I didn't know what to expect from it. Like, so when you when you texted yeah. me about it, too, I was like, oh, yes, we can talk about it. Uh, <laughs> but it. You know, there's a lot of movies. I think X also achieved it very well. That felt like throwback, but modern at the same time. Um, which is a testament to, you know, like Ty West and, and Travis Stevens as directors. But, you know, it, it's sometimes you have these horror movies. or not even just horror movies, just, you know, movies in general where they try to be throwback. But to the point where it doesn't even feel necessarily like that's where the movie wanted to be authentically. It's just like, hey, we could just put this in the 70s. Or, you know, whatever time period. And really, it doesn't influence the movie much or anything like that. And, like, in this movie, too, the other thing that's great is, like, as far as timeline and where year, what year this movie takes place, it's kind of vague. Like, it, it's definitely more modern and not necessarily in the 70s because there's modern technology and stuff going on in some scenes. But uh, there is a very, you know, old school feel to how it's shot, how the characters are behaving. And how they're written, and uh, I I really really like that movie a lot. Yeah, that was one of those movies that I didn't see a lot of fanfare around. At the same time, it was one of those things where I was like, oh man, there's so many Shutter originals to catch up on. And yet, with the Wounded Fawn, it was the type of thing where immediately it kind of sets the tone in it differentiating itself from other, whether it be Shutter originals or movies that have tried to dabble in something similar. Um, and, you know, I would say for people that don't know about it, like has some really great soundtrack, has really great vibes, I think, in terms of like cinematography, the lighting. And then at the same time, it has this really great rogues gallery of these fucked up creatures. Um, and <laughs> yes. I think also, you know, like you mentioned, has a really terrific ending that uh, I think everybody that sits through that movie, whether you enjoy it as much as we did, they'll get a certain level of satisfaction out of it uh, that... I don't know. Seldomly, some of these films will allow for. Actually, I would say it almost rivals uh, Pearl's ending in a way that's somewhat similar, but you know, oh, yeah. different uh, contextually. But at the same time, I think that it does a good job of using its end credits in a way that not a lot of films do, um, which you know, I'm sure will be a trend now, thanks mostly to uh, Pearl and sort of the notoriety around that. Um, but I think, yeah, more people should be utilizing their credit sequences. Uh, a little more than they have been because there's definitely something to be gained from that. Yes. No, for sure. It, it, it's always, I mean, I, it's, it's, it was just nice to be like, Oh, what, what, what else is going on here? Let's go. I mean, with, with Pearl, it's definitely, which I, I'm, I'm going to be going into, I'm sure. Um, but with Pearl, like, you know, with 
with a wounded fawn, which I'll just speak on to since we're, that's what we're talking about. Like it, it was refreshing to have a movie like that. That's kind of came out of nowhere and clearly had its own voice and wanted to yeah. be with you from beginning, middle and end. And I, <laughs> I appreciate that a lot. I'm picking up that you and I at some point need to do like a best of shutters, original episode or oh, something yeah. where we just run down <laughs> all of these movies that we haven't had a chance to dive into in a little more depth. Cause we unfortunately have to kind of skate around some of them just because, you know, we have so many uh, categories to cover and we're coming up on two and a half hours and I'm sure we'll be chatting oh, a little bit longer. I'm so, but, uh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, I, no, dude, this is, this is the type of stuff I love getting to chat about um, horror films that I haven't had a chance necessarily uh, to chat about in some length. Um, and I think that there's no better time than to dive into best female performance of the year for you. Ah, shit. This was one of the and hard ones. I feel ones. like this is one that incredibly difficult. I probably have the most um, honorable mentions for this one, but it's uh, I, I'm yeah, you know, I won't jinx it. Why don't you just tell <laughs> tell us tell the people what your uh, favorite f- female performance of the year is? Uh, I I will. <laughs> okay, I don't want to sound like a broken record. Um, and I will also be like these, the honorable mentions here are like, uh, they could be there too. This, this was, this was probably my hardest category this year. Um, but I'd probably say my, no- <laughs> see, even right commit. now, just do commit. it. I'm just going to say <laughs> Mia goth. Yep. Uh, in, <laughs> it, it, she, she fucking did a hell of a job. In, in both movies oh and especially yeah. with Pearl, like really letting her get to just revel in it. And uh, my favorite monologue from the year came from Pearl. Um, there's a good monologue also in Nope that I think it should get a shout out for Steven Yoon. But um, the Pearl monologue, I, the theater I was in, it was it was dead silent. Um, and the vulnerability she has in that scene as well as I mean, like the whole movie, I mean, like she she has this amazing ability to go from being just this innocent kind spirit to just I'm gonna fucking kill you at like you know a moment you know just right like just right there and I I, yeah I mean like in her performance in X as Pearl also great uh, it can be appreciated much more after watching uh, in X after watching Pearl and um, even as Maxine, I mean, they are all, you know, very, you know, it, it's just she's she's an amazing actress. And I her performances in both movies, especially with Pearl, like Pearl, like especially the thing with Pearl, which I, I loved about it was that you could really tell that Ty West knew he had someone special that he could really kind of go really go for it with certain scenes especially with the end credits which is literally just a scene of her reacting to something um as well as something that prop that she just did uh and it's just a still it's just watching her face and seeing it go from manic to sad to a mix of both and she goes through so much emotions in that movie uh and she's amazing uh and, and it's I can gush about so many of the actresses from this year. <laughs> like, you know, like, I, I mean, like, as you just said, I mean, I, I mean, I'll let you say yours first before we go into honorable mentions, but yeah, th- there's a lot of great acting this year. 
Oh, mine was Mia Goth as oh, well. Oh, okay. You know, it was it was the type of <laughs> people definitely are not going to believe that we didn't share I know. this before that. Holy which shit. is just indicative. I mean, it, at least it shows that like you and I have very similar tastes in film, uh, which is no, great. I, I, um, I love it. I love it. I think that yeah, much to your point, Mia Goth's ability to, you know. And as far as I know, they did, they filmed Pearl after X. I don't believe they filmed Pearl and then X. Um, but it was the type of thing where, you know, the fact that she's able to inhabit two separate characters and characters that essentially, actually, it's like three separate characters, right? Because you have young Pearl, current day Pearl, and then you have Maxine. And the fact that between playing Maxine and current day Pearl and X, are obviously, you know, visually very different based on the prosthetics, but also, you know, the the facets of those characters, them being such opposites, but at the same time being very similar. And you can see similarities between their performances, even if they are two very different people. But then when you look at her performance in X as Pearl versus in Pearl as Pearl, <laughs> um, just getting to see, you know, this character that is vilified in X... And then you begin to have some semblance of sympathy for her after you watch Pearl and just seeing how this is somebody that, you know, while is not justified in this murderous rampage she goes <laughs> down, at the same time, you at least begin to understand how, like, this is a very fragile person. You understand why she's so fragile based on the relationship and circumstances of her life with her parents and whatnot, and how, you know, being essentially told she is a failure at what she wants to do and seeing how she, that is really you know the traje the the spark that sets off you know her trajectory for becoming you know pearl this murderer um is heartbreaking to a certain degree right mm -hmm. it's not just that she's a fail artist but it's the fact that you know she's dealing with what is in her mind this like abu emotionally abusive relationship with her mother right and you know that's justifiable to a certain point based on some of the coldness and the realities of the situation she has to deal with. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it helps that Ty West, again, has this vision of, you know, creating a prequel that is tonally different to, you know, the original film X, but at the same time, it feels right at home with this character. Um, and that character really is the connective tissue to, you know, between the two films in a way that, feels significant while different, you know, between the two of them. Um, yeah, that's a tremendous performance. And really, it's one that I don't think I knew because I went into X not knowing anything about it, really. Cause, yeah, same. Like, but it, I just saw the trailer and I was like, yeah, I'll just dive into that. That looks interesting. Ty West being attached is, uh, you know, that's going to get me to go see it regardless of what it's about, just because it's been so long since he'd made a horror film. And the fact that, you know, I learned right after that Mia Goth did both roles and, you know, was able to clearly see differences in both of those performances in X, but at the same time begin to see similarities between the two characters just speaks to not only the strength of the writing, but also the strength of her performance. And it's great that she was able to come in as, I believe, a co-writer on Pearl, um, because I would have to imagine that that has more of her own personality or more of, you know, Pearl's personality coming through. Because uh, she's able to advocate perhaps on her own behalf and character development in a way that she wouldn't have been able to with something like X, where, you know, she's coming to it, uh, coming to it fresh, if you will. 
But uh, yeah, you know, Mia Goth, absolutely fantastic. But what were a few of uh, your honorable mentions? Okay, yeah. Th- so <laughs> this was my 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 uh, hardest category. So I'll do some just quick quick ones. But uh, did you see the free fall? I did not. Um, Andrea Londo is the lead actress in that, and it is a it's a solid movie. It it, it takes a genre of horror that is done to death. Uh, and does something new with it. And her performance in it is really good. Um, and I just think that she kind of deserves a shout out in that movie as well um, for people who just maybe haven't heard of it. Uh, I hadn't even heard of this, so I'm going to add this to my list. Yeah, it, I, it's definitely worth a watch. Um, obviously, Isabel Furman for coming back for uh, <laughs> Orphan. Like, holy shit. Like, that is not a small feat to come back after that long and still kill it like that. Um, literally as well. Um, and then, uh, Aisha D from, uh, Sissy, which you haven't seen yet, but she's great. Um, and then, uh, just, uh, uh, Kiju Jin, who was in Midnight and does the lead. She did a great job. Uh, that movie has been one of the ones that I think about randomly, just like throughout the year, just cause I, it kind of came out of nowhere and I, I just really liked it. Um, and then quick shouts to Lauren Lavera for Terrifier, just you know, new badass final girl, and uh, Jamie Clayton. Uh, she 100 percent deserves a shout because I, I after I watched that, like one of the first things I did, I was like, damn, I want to help Priestess poster with Jamie Clayton. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the design and her performance is, is great. So that would be my yeah. shoutouts. To build off of that, Jamie Clayton brings a you know talk about the fact that you're taking an established beloved character and builds on it in her own way like adds exactly what you would expect of another you know Cenobite leader in that world which is like this sinister kind of sensuality to what she's saying Mm -hmm. and just the way that she carries it which feels right at home in that kind of you know that uh, universe of Hellraiser and all the Cenobites and their kind of like methodology or ideology Um, definitely Rebecca Hall would be one of mine yes, again for yes. I, I, for resurrection. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, literally, it, anything that she would be in, whether it's horror or not, I would watch just because she's guaranteed to deliver uh, a strong performance. Uh, I would also say Anna Cobb from We're All Going to the World's Fair does a really great job at capturing the loneliness and isolation that that character in that film is dealing with. Um, in a big way that it ta- that for a majority of it, it's like a quiet role. Um, but she does a great job of filling that with a lot of emotion um, and makes for a really heartbreaking performance in the best way possible. Uh-huh. Um, check and that for out. me, I would say finally, oh yeah, dude, we're all going to the World's Fair is probably the most lo-fi horror film you'll watch this year, but it captures a facet of online culture in a way that is, you know, somber, it's depressing, but at the same time, there's this horror edge to the entire film um, that I think really capitalizes on, again, you know, that kind of like specific corner of early, I don't know, 2000s type of uh, internet culture, or just like occupying forums and relationships people make through the internet. Okay. It was very strange, but very affecting. Um, and I would say last but not least would definitely be Kristen Stewart in Crimes of the Future. Oh, yes. She plays... You know, I think it's best described as like she goes pretty much full <laughs> goblin mode in that movie. Uh, she plays such a over the top, 
you know, eccentric, horny, but very sort of like odd character in a way that, you know, it almost seems as if like she's crawling out of her skin that entire movie just because of the sort of like awkward complexities of her character. But at the same time, it's like very, I don't know, she's like reserved, but also like clearly bursting at the seams with sexuality, but not quite sure how to fully express that sometimes. I don't know. It makes for a uncomfortable performance to watch, but I think, you know, it's kind of like not to always uh, mention Robert Pattinson within the same breath as her, but like she is another example of somebody that people put in a box for far too long and within the last 10 years has done nothing but kind of go out of her way almost to prove to people like there's so much more to her as an actress um, than just, you know, that series of movies that she was in, whatever, 15 years ago. Uh, and I think that Crimes of the Future is definitely an example of her, you know, furthermore continuing this trend of saying, like, actually, there's a great deal to me that people aren't giving me enough credit for. And I think that's a really great, uh, strong performance of that. Yeah. And a great return for David Cronenberg to horror. Yeah. You know, finally, if we want to give a little shout out to uh, Crimes of the Future. Yes. Definitely. In some ways, it feels like a retreading of his in terms of like, again, this merger of technology and flesh and the influence one has over the other but at the same time like further proving just the master that he is he's able to capitalize on that subgenre of it that's very much his own in a way that is uh refreshingly disturbing uh, yeah, yeah no it, <laughs> some of those it has some, some really of the machines and just people in that are so strange and so weird and yet it's uh it's it's uh, wonderfully deranged. It is. It is. It, there's really some, there's some great body horror in it, and and even other like Viggo Mortensen and Leah Sado, and there's a lot of great performances. But definitely check it out if you like David Cronenberg. Yeah, and that's uh, hopefully will continue to live on on Hulu for anybody that was on the fence about checking that out. Also, say the main theme of that uh, of that film, I really really like. It was used in the trailers as well, but yeah, definitely check that one out because I think. That was one that um, I had to watch a second time to really appreciate it because at first I was just like, man, this is – while I'm a huge Cronenberg fan, even for him, this was just like very strange <laughs> and in some instances almost restrained a little bit. But at the same time, you know, it plays by a lot of the staples of body horror that he is obviously, you know, so so well known for. Um, and I think, yeah, this is a, a glorious return and hopefully will not be the last of his um, reemergence in body horror. Yep, I, I hope so. I look forward to some more with him. <laughs> yeah, but uh, let's get into male performance of the year. For you, what was yours? Uh, I mean, it was just another tough one. Um, but uh, <laughs> for me, one, which is a movie we actually haven't been talking much about, which I mentioned to you, I don't know if you got to see it. Did you see The Menu? I did not, unfortunately. I was super bummed not to be able to see that because it, it was – playing in the theater near me and then you know i missed the cycle of it and i was like oh that'll definitely be on on demand before uh, you know the holiday and then it came out it's going to be on uh hbo either the first or second week of january oh, in uh, okay. 2023 so i unfortunately have to wait but i'm highly anticipating checking that one out yeah okay i, well, I won't go too far into like details of the character but ray finds in the movie who is a phenomenal actor. He's one of those actors I like sometimes I, f I forget about, but then every time he shows up, he like always just like puts out a hell of a performance. Um, he's amazing in it. Um, and there's a lot going on with his character as the movie continues that you're like, oh, shit. Um, 
but he's he's amazing um and but yeah i'll, I'll leave it kind of at that because that, that's a, a a great movie to go into not really knowing what it's about um and then a, a shout out david howard thornton again uh, you know, there's a lot. I, I mean, I know the character can be seen as simple, but there's a lot going on there with his performance, his art. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, okay, I'll let you go first before we go into honorable mention. Sorry. Um, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I just skip steps. Uh, but yeah, no. Ray Fiennes is would be my uh, my pick, I think. And there's some cl- other close ones too that I'll get to. But yeah, Ray Fiennes is one of those guys that every time he pops up in something, I'm just like, why is he not in more movies? Because I could use any movie benefits from his inclusion. Agreed. Um, but yeah, for me, mine would definitely be Sebastian Stan oh, shit. Uh, from Fresh. Ah, oh, shit. I forgot about <laughs> Fresh. Fresh is a... Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, what a, that's another great movie that I didn't... Ah. Uh. That was when I missed on my have, list. Shit. <laughs> I have gushed ad nauseum about this film, but it's the type of movie that, again, kind of got regurgitated onto a streaming platform, almost seeming like, you know, it was whatever came out to little fanfare on the platform, little marketing, and yet it completely blew me away. And it was one of those movies that, you know, really it takes the modern awkwardness of, you know, online dating and these things and applies it to a subgenre that is not all that original, which is, you know, the man eventually kidnaps the woman and then does this or that with them. But it's more about the modern pairing again of, you know, the awkwardness of online dating, but more so it's the performances that are so stellar. And I think that for me, again, you know, Sebastian Stan was a guy that who, his filmography I was largely ignorant of outside of the Marvel stuff. So to get to see him in this villain role that goes in a direction that is so foreign to what I was expecting of him and what his capacity as an actor was, and yet it's not just that he's playing a bad guy, it's the way in which he handles that bad guy, right? He, he <laughs> is very cool and calm and collective for 75% he's of the movie. He's charming as hell, too. He's charming as shit, right? <laughs> I mean, just the way that he picks up the protagonist in the store, it's just like, oh, man. If I was in that grocery store, I'd be taking notes because he's suave as fuck. Yeah. Right? And, you know, seeing him go from that and then you learn about his character more. And even though the more you learn about him, the more despicable he is, he doesn't break his role, really. Right. He doesn't break this facade that he's been putting on that kind of further instills just how out of his mind he is and what he's doing to these women and whatnot. And then the way that that performance really does build and escalate, right? And that you get to that finale and that's when he loses his cool. And you get to see a whole nother facet of this character that you haven't really seen or even seen glimpses of throughout the entire movie, right? right? It'd be one thing if he's this guy that's cool and calm, but then every 25 minutes he kind of has an outburst and you're like, oh, that's just what's almost above the surface, right? Of what he's capable of. But really, you know, the more the situation gets out of hand, out of control, he just, you know, fully explodes, which makes the finale like have this really disturbing, fucked up uh, quality to the conclusion of what has largely been a fucked up film. Um, But yeah, you know, Sebastian Stan, absolutely fantastic. Um, And I think that overall, it's a film that, uh, you know, plays around with some, some, some subgenres that you've seen before, but at the same time, you know, adds a layer of complexity and style you know it also has a really great soundtrack i'm a sucker for um a delayed title card like i I don't think you i don't think you see the title card for the first 30 minutes of the movie which kind of goes hand in hand 
with the overall approach to this film um, and the fact that it kind of lulls you into this sense of insecurity, much like the protagonist is experiencing. And then when that moment hits and you see what's happening, um, it really does kind of just go full steam ahead in a regard and doesn't let up until the end. Um, and yeah, that's a, a Hulu original for anybody that hasn't seen it. Could not recommend it more. Absolutely one of my favorite movies of the year. And Sebastian Stan is uh, is a gem in that. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. And also shout out to Daisy Edgar Jones. I would have added yes. her to my female performances. I, I I can't believe I missed that. Uh, we, we saw a lot have, of movies. We, I've, <laughs> I saw a lot I've of had movies. to apologize for not seeing like six or seven movies you've mentioned. So. Oh, no, you're good. I, I, I mean, yeah, no, Fresh is great. The funniest thing, too, which I was going to just say is even after the reveal with Sebastian Stan, there's still moments with him and you're like, oh, man, he's still being really charming. He's still charming. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, what's, what the, what the that's what's so great about the performance is that it's like, on some level, you could be like, well, I understand. I still understand why some people fall into his web. Right. right. It's not that you it's not you uh, are sympathetic no. or justifying <laughs> it, but it's like you still, you know, he doesn't break character for so long that you're like, well, I still see how people fall for this, even if, you know, have you have now seen behind the curtain of what yeah. he's doing. D- definitely best dance of the of the year. <laughs> <laughs> The guy can do it all. He can, right? he can pick up chicks uh, based on bad sort of like grape humor at the uh, grocery store, <laughs> but at the same time, like a killer dancer. Absolutely. But what were some of your uh, honorable mentions? Uh, Ethan Hawke is a big one for me. I, I it, it, Black Phone is one of those movies this year. Uh, a surprising amount of people that I know don't like, but I, it worked for me. I'm a big Scott Derrickson fan. Um, Ethan Hawke... Uh, he played it great that he's he he you know not to the level of like Sebastian Stan but you know there he has that quiet side to his character like when he's I mean like you know the big thing is he's like you know he's abducting children so you know you're sitting there and like at first his presence is very much in the background and then once it hits you're like wow what is this gonna is this guy just gonna be like a you know, like a, you don't really know what he's once he snatches the protagonist. Like at least for me, I wasn't sure what kind of like guy he was really gonna be. Like I didn't know if he, I didn't know if he was gonna be like you know, kind of just like a psycho that doesn't that's like you know, freak being a freak around him or, but he's very reserved in the role. He has his moment, like like he has outbursts in the film, especially towards the end, which are you know more for what's happening than it is like him necessarily just breaking down. But there's, there's scenes where he's just very quiet and calculated in the way he says things. That's eerie. Um, expect- well, that's a, that's a big part of his performance, right? Is that I've talked to people, uh, the only people that I've talked to that have like outright despised this movie are people that have read the short story that uh, Joe Hill wrote okay. about this because it goes against doesn't go against but it doesn't go into as much detail about him as it does obviously in the short story Mm -hmm. which for whatever reason was a huge sticking point for them but as somebody like myself that hasn't read the short story his performance is menacing and effective just first off it's about you know his physicality in the role which is which you know is just like him in that one scene sitting in a chair with his shirt off with a belt in his lap that's one of the most menacing scenes I've seen this year yeah and I think that a big part of it is just the way that he occupies space in the movie. It's not necessarily what he's doing, what he's saying, but it's just like the way that he takes up space. I wouldn't be surprised also like 
for that role if he like gained extra weight for that role. But it's just like the fact that he takes up more space in certain shots and like the way in which it captures him just kind of occupying a space, um, I found to be really, really effective. And, you know, what little I know about the short story, I'm glad that the film doesn't lean as heavily into, you know, in the short story, he's um, a, a pedophile, I believe. And I was glad that the film didn't lean as heavily into that. Okay. Just because that would add a facet to the character that, you know, it's already a despicable character. But the fact that you don't dive into that element as much in the film, it leaves your imagination to like be like, well, what is he really doing? Is he just killing them? Is he doing something else? Is there something else going on here? There's a, a little bit of vagueness to his portrayal in the film, which I think makes him that much more terrifying because you're not you're not concrete, crystal clear of what he's truly capable of um, in some regards. Yeah, no, I, I, I 100% agree. I, I thought one of the strengths of the movie was that they didn't reveal much about him. Uh, I mean, for me, the thing too is you have that, you know, opposition of he has this horrifying mask on. But a lot of the conversations he has with the protagonist are, are relatively calm conversations. You know, like, like, like obviously there's that tinge of, of, of horror because the kid's you know, locked in a basement and chain, you know, but he's, you know, he's talking to him and he's like having conversations with him. There is that vagueness of you're not sure exactly because, yeah, you don't really know. Is his motivation that he is a pedophile or... Is it just that he gets a kick out of killing kids or is he even someone that maybe he's just a he's, you know, someone off their rocker that just kind of wants someone to talk to that has these impulses? Because there are times when he's interacting with with um, I can't think of the lead, the lead character's name, but where he's talking with him, where he's just, you know, he seems like he's just invested in wanting to talk to him. So you're never quite 100% sure what the motivation is. And then, yeah, you have those scenes like when he's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to make it look like you can just like leave right now and see what happens. Um, and uh, yeah, and then I think it does add to the terror of it because you're really like, I don't know what this guy wants, but it's obviously not good. Um, right. Well, those, those you mentioned them earlier um, and they were played by Mason Thames and Madeline McCraw, the shit. kids in this movie are really terrific and, a, you know, a standout uh, example, I think, of child actors that, you know, can pull their weight amongst a, a star-studded cast of people like Ethan Hawke and, uh, you know, James Ransone. Yeah. No, they were they were amazing. I I, I get that. Uh, Madeline McGraw, shout out to her. A new category, uh, best crier. Uh, there's a scene yeah. with her where she's crying. I thought they were like, oh my Jesus, like, do they actually like abuse this kid on set? Like, holy <laughs> shit. Like, she is so good. Um, yeah. But yeah, no. Black Phone's definitely one of those movies this year. Like, it, it, I don't know if it'll be for you, but if it is, it's a really well done movie. Absolutely, yeah. Um, for, let's see, my honorable mentions for male performances... I would definitely say, you know, Stephen Yoon, Jupe Park, as I mentioned from Nope. Yeah, um, I would say also Fedja Van Hewitt from Speak No Evil. He plays the antagonist in that film. Oh, Just he is, he is damn so good. reserved, but he's such a good job at making you uncomfortable. Not only are the characters in the film uncomfortable, but he's able to make the audience's skin crawl just with, you know, some of the things that he. Um, sort of is like referencing in just this very kind of coy language, but you can kind of see through the thinly veiled threats and whatnot that uh, 
make him a very, very disturbing and uh, emotionally as well as physically abusive character. Um, and I would say, last but not least for me would be, and I'm probably going to fuck up his last name, so apologies, Mark Rylance from Bones and All. Uh, I haven't he seen plays it. I haven't that. the, yeah, I don't want to get too much into it because I know you haven't seen it, but he does such a great job of playing an antagonist in that film that is very subtle and restrained a majority of the time. But at the same time, when he, you know, snaps, he does so in a way that is uh, truly disturbing and probably one of my favorite understated villains of the year. Um, but yeah, that's another one you and I'll compare notes on hopefully in the future because Bones and All uh, was one that I heard a lot about. But when I finally saw it, um, it surprised me in a big way. I'll say it it handles the supernatural in a way that's not unlike um, Mike Flanagan's Doctor Sleep. Okay. I, I still have to see Doctor Sleep. Say about that. I'm so late on that. <laughs> oh, I know, man, dude. I know. Talk about movies we got to talk about. Let me know when you see that and only watch the director's cut. Oh, yeah. Because no, that's it, one of the rare sure. instances where the director's cut, I think, is drastically better um, than the theatrical release. No, for sure. Um, also, one I just forgot if I could say it real quick. Yeah, please. Uh, well, I mean, we've been talking about him a bit, but Tim Roth needs a shout out. Yes. Um, oh, fuck, I and then yeah. uh, uh, Jun from Midnight, who is from Squid mm-hmm. Games, which I also have not seen, but he was really good. Um, and Neil Maskell in the movie Bull, which I think I've told you about. I don't know if you've seen it yet. Um, he was in the movie Kill List also, which was a horror movie that came out a bit ago. Um, but he, I don't want to say anything about Bull other than it's like a revenge flick, but it just, it, 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 there's a reason I'm putting it bringing this up on this list it is worth watching um but he's really good in it and uh yeah and joseph winner too for deadstream just because he was he was oh, a, he yeah, was a joy yeah. to watch a little shout out you know he was great yeah he's one of those that was one you know that film in general which we'll definitely i you know we'll definitely talk about that film i think uh in the future because that's a movie that i think didn't necessarily come and go, but at the same time, again, it kind of got buried a little bit uh, amongst the other Shutter releases this year. But I think Deadstream is not only a strong showing of uh, found footage, but overall just a really strong example of uh, a horror comedy, which is a, a subgenre I have a uh, love-hate relationship with. But that was definitely an example of, uh, of a horror comedy that kind of managed to have a foot in both genre influences rather than one more so than the other yeah no it, it was surprisingly like it, it uh, for me I, I i didn't see a lot of just like pure comedy movies this year and it was definitely one of the funnier movies i've seen in a while on top of being a, a well-done horror movie on top of being a well-done found footage movie uh you know because found footage movies they're easy to be boring or something you've seen before and and this one managed to uh, put its own twist on it and, and remain entertaining throughout. Absolutely. Yeah. But I think that this was definitely a year, you know, it was so funny that we had so many of the same films <laughs> uh, picked or moments for specific categories, but this really was, you know, and I even said it last year, but it's the type of thing where I just feel like horror is really having this moment where there's so much originality. There's so much talent involved. You know, it feels like, the general film world is taking horror seriously in a way that, you know, horror has wanted them to for so long. And it's not, you know, we've had, of course, big budget horror films for so many years, but I think that, you know, 
you're seeing studios take bigger risks on certain films. Like you've got Barbarian, you know, you, even something like Smile, which originally was going to be dumped onto streaming only, and it ended up being this massive theatrical success. Um, and I think that, you know, of course, as I mentioned, Barbarian capitalizing on that meager budget and then showing that, you know, if you have an idea and you're able to execute on it in a unique way, it can be something that, again, is one of the most notable films of the year, but also one of the biggest horror success stories of the year. Yeah. I mean, Terrifier oh, that 2 was the one in the same, I was bring up. same like, vein, right? It's, talk about a like little engine that could movie. Like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, it had the GoFundMe. It, you know, the first Terrifier I know has like it's it's following, but it was never like as big as this one got. But uh, it it for you know for for as you know for people who are horror fans, it, it makes me feel good to see a movie, you know, make a huge profit off of something that they you know obviously put a lot of hard work into. Um, but you know, normally would be just like a direct to streaming somewhere, you know, video on demand movie. Um, so for me, it was like, it was like, it was so nice to see a movie. Like, I mean, it, nice watching it, you know, it was going to depend on the viewer, but as, as far as just being a horror fan, fan in general, it, it's, it's wonderful to see these smaller budget movies get this traction and be appreciated. Um, I think for me, one of the, like, especially with Terrifier 2 is a perfect example of, I'm surprised how many people have like, actually embraced it as opposed to just being, it's it's just trash because I think a lot of people would just watch it in that frame of mind of this is over the top, gory, stupid nonsense. Um, but I've been impressed by more. I, I hear more people liking it than not. And I think that's a really cool just to kind of show the like different sides of horror during the year of like, you know, having the more serious stuff to appreciate as well as having a terrifier too, which is like an old, like grindhousey, you know, slasher flick. And then, like, some of them, like, middle ground, like, Smile, which, to me, is even better than most mainstream tend to be. Um, so, it's, it's it, yeah, just to keep repeating, and I'll repeat it again. Great year for horror. In, indie darlings, everything. Well, this is the thing, too. It's like, <laughs> now we've talked for almost three hours, and it's like, <laughs> oh, man, there's so many movies, probably, that, like, we enjoyed at some point this year. Um, that We're not getting was to. definitely a standout in more ways than one, but you know, it's just an excuse for me to uh, to coerce you into coming back in the future and chat about Happily. horror movies with me. <laughs> and uh, and I was so happy to have you on to chat about it because you know it's it's been great to uh, get to know somebody over the year that has clearly similar taste in horror as I do. Um, and I always know that <laughs> I have somebody I can I can text about the most obscure shit that I stumble upon or at least recommend, right? It's, yeah. It's nice to either share thoughts about a movie we've both enjoyed or, you know, I can recommend something like, uh, not that you hadn't heard of it, but something like Terrifier 2 that it's like, man, I can't recommend this to anybody. <laughs> right. And then yeah, I always remember I... that <laughs> Stuart Gorehound Gears is just a, a text away. <laughs> No, yeah, no, no, it's, it's, no, man, it's been great getting to know you. I mean, just as a friend in general, but yeah, no, it is, it's always, uh, it's always nice when you have somebody that you know isn't going to get completely sick of your shit talking about like horror movies or just anything in general that you're passionate about and realize, oh, we've been talking for like an hour about like this one thing. Um, but to go into detail about like movies and yeah, like with you, I could recommend a movie like Terrifier 2 and no, I won't be judged. 
<laughs> you know, not too many other people I could do that with. Um, so it's, yeah. And to also somebody that appreciates horror on all fronts, as opposed to, you know, some people can't really see positives in certain genres of horror or they won't even bother. Um, and something with you I, I, I've always appreciated is that you'll look at, you know, you could look at a movie like Terrifier 2 and see the quality that's there and not just, you know, throw it to the side, um, but also could talk to me, you know, about a movie that, like, uh, you know, we could go into, like, the deeper details of something like X or Pearl, which some people will just think is, oh, well, those are just straightforward slasher flicks when there's, you know, a lot more going on there that I think most people wouldn't even care to pick up on or appreciate a movie like Mad God, which I think some people would watch and just be like, what am I watching? (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Which is fair, but at the same time, going into, like realizing that this is like a sheer piece of uh you know craftsmanship in every sense of the word but yeah you know i'm i'm only ever as good as my guests and i was happy to have you on to uh to chat about our 2020 year in horror and uh you know hopefully we'll have you back uh you know in the future and we'll keep uh keep chatting horror yeah, it's been my pleasure i'll ha- happily do it again terrific well thanks man of course of course Thank you for listening to another episode of Daily Horror Habit. You can follow the show on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod or give me a follow at NotFunnyJ. Thanks again for listening and I appreciate everybody's continued support of the show and I very much look forward to uh, continuing my uh, singular brand of nonsense and horror coverage in the new year. So thank you guys very much and I will see you in the new year.